Hello and welcome back to Hey Look Listen. My name is Liam Sheehan. Thank you so much for joining me. A few months ago I did an episode ranking all the main games in the Final Fantasy series and ever since doing that episode I thought wouldn't it be fun to do the same thing for the Legend of Zelda series but I've been holding off on doing it because I don't know I find it kind of daunting. It's weird, one of the best things, or the best thing about doing this podcast is getting to, you know, just uh, ramble on about games that I'm very passionate about, but when, it, when they're games I'm very passionate about, I tend to, there tends to be kind of an added pressure to try to be eloquent and try to kind of really kind of uh, sell what I love about these games, so I just thought it'd be very daunting to do that with the Legend of Zelda series, because that's uh, my favourite series of all time, there's no game series I like more than Zelda, and there's 19 of these things, so I've been like holding off on doing it but I've been like I gotta do it I did it for Final Fantasy I gotta do it for Zelda so that's it it's happening now why not it's time to get this done but before I get to it and I want to get to it quite quickly because there's 19 of these things to get through but let's just cover the basics the Zelda series is a fantasy adventure series that began in 1986 on the Nintendo Entertainment System and the latest one was The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild which came out in 2017 but there was another one slated for next year they're, they are a heady mixture of exploration, combat, puzzle solving. Actually, I'm going to talk about what Zelda means to me and why I like the Zelda series. They are really, I've always said they're the, they're the perfect distillation of the fantasy adventure genre. Not just in video games, but in all mediums. They are games that drop you into fantastical worlds that have you exploring deep dark dungeons as well as galloping across lush verdant fields. They give you exciting combat encounters but also require to use your brain and solve puzzles it's kind of every element of the fantasy adventure for me zelda zelda always caters to but look i think i'll cover the beating heart of the series better by just talking about the games themselves and it'll come out that way but just before i begin i'll just say that the zelda series is super important to me like i said it's my favorite game series of all time and it's brought me untold happiness through the years you know especially when i was younger and i really really needed games like this to kind of you know I don't know not distract me from life but they were very formative to me they were very um always pleasant things in my life and I I absolutely adore these games my Zelda career started in 1998 with Ocarina of Time like a a lot a lot of um people's I believe and any game that came out before or before Ocarina of Time I played I went back and discovered so just that might color my um my ranking list because you know no one ever agrees on the what's the best Zelda game or how they should be ranked um but if you want to get kind of get some um kind of uh an angle of where my list is coming from it's I began with Ocarina of Time and I don't know that kind of color is my kind of love for the Zelda series but enough rambling about that there's 19 of these like I said so let's just dive right into it with number 19 and right off the bat hand to god the 19th game is the one I feel I have the least authority to talk about because it's the only game in this series that I haven't completed. I haven't seen the credits roll on it. And uh, the main reason for that is because it's, you know, my least favorite one. But just casually perusing other lists of this nature before I kind of went and did my own, it seems to be very common for this to be um, ranked last. It's 2015's Legend of Zelda Triforce Heroes. And this is one of Zelda's rare forays into multiplayer, but it's not the last multiplayer game that will be on this list. And it's also, weirdly enough, not the last Zelda multiplayer game that will be on this list. 
that is really hard to play multiplayer. And that's kind of my, my biggest umbrage with this game is that it's a cool idea to kind of, you know, experiment with different ways to, you know, make a Zelda game or any game in general. And yeah, I'm, I'm totally okay with a single player game, you know, having a multiplayer iteration. But Nintendo's bizarre choice to make it really difficult to play this game multiplayer and uh, they've done this before in the past and a game that is higher on this list a bit that I like quite a bit more but yeah this is a 3DS uh, multiplayer Zelda game that came out in a time in my life where I would find it very difficult to find people to play a 3DS multiplayer game with but even outside of that you can only play one player so you can play a single player or you can play three player no two player if I find one friend who can play this game with me you know for shit out of luck we need another one and I just hate that I hate the way they, they designed this game around this whole multiplayer concept and then just made it like kept us at arm's length from being able to experience a multiplayer. So kind of my main reason why it's on the bottom of this is because I'd never experienced a multiplayer and I assume it's probably better multiplayer. Uh, yet I kind of, I, even if I had played a multiplayer, I feel like it, the, the fact that it's so difficult <laughs> to just get this working multiplayer would kind of inspire me, I think, to have this game low down if not on the bottom anyway but as a single player game it's fine it's the least essential zelda game by far it's the least interesting one it's more kind of, it doesn't have the big open world exploration it's kind of more mission based and little chunks of zelda gameplay that i think would be a lot more fun to play with friends rather than uh having to control three different links all by myself which is my main reason for having this game on the bottom uh, I just I don't feel I still don't feel like I I've played this game properly and I'm kind of um, bitter about how difficult it is to play prop properly and my um, playing my my experience of playing this game single player was sort of ex extremely average like just the most average thing ever like it's hard to make Zelda average Zelda by its core design is up for me is always just so fun but I found Triforce Heroes just the blandest version of um, a Zelda I've ever played even though you get to dress your links up in fun little costumes like dresses and stuff and that's cool so it's definitely bright and colorful and um goofy like uh, a lot of the best elders are but i can't put this game higher on this list and the worst thing about it i i almost had my um number 18 game on the bottom but what kind of maybe just like you know solidified that i wanted this on number 19 is like it's the one i'm least interested in talking about i don't have any fire for this game which is why i'm moving straight on past it and number 18 is the complete opposite. While it's a game that I don't particularly like, it's a game I definitely like talking about. And it's a game that I think is way more interesting than Triforce Heroes. And it's actually one of the ones in this list I want to talk about the most. I love a divisive game. I love when a game comes out that can be talked about in like in ways that some people think it's like the best in the series and some think, some think it's dog shit. Like I love The Last of Us Part 2. I love the way some people despise it. I love the way some people adore it. And when talking about favorite Zelda games, it's not like half and half or anything like that. But I love the way that there is just this loyal group of Zelda fans, vocal group of Zelda fans who will always go to bat for the very second Zelda game ever made, The Adventure of Link for the NES. But I am not one of them. I, in fact, sort of hate this game. That doesn't mean I don't enjoy talking about it. It doesn't mean that I don't respect it. I brought this up in the Final Fantasy list as well when I was talking about Final Fantasy 2, that there is a weird kind of trend of uh, 
NES uh, franchises that would end up being big, big sprawling franchises where their second iteration is the strange one. Like Final Fantasy has it, uh, Metroid has it, Castlevania has it, and uh, Zelda has it. This, all these years later, uh, Adventure of Link is still completely different from uh, any other Zelda game. It was like they pivoted in a completely different direction for the second iteration of the series. And then after it was done, they didn't really take many lessons from it into the third game they kind of just like in looking back they just look back at the first game to find inspiration which makes it a very strange outlier in the series as a whole and i think because i think it's because of its strangeness and its uniqueness and its individualism is why uh, a lot of people kind of glomp onto it the biggest change the biggest difference is that this is a side scrolling game rather than the, the classic legend of zelda games are from a top-down perspective the first the original legend of zelda was huge because it had you exploring in all directions. It dropped you into this world and just had you explore. While uh, Adventure of Link, you're, you're going from left to right. Now, there is a big open world to explore. Uh, but as soon as you enter a cave or enter a town or whatever, you uh, it, you turn into a, a 2D side-scrolling platform-looking thing. So it would be unjust for me to say that the Adventure of Link um, gets rid of the kind of exploration that um, let Zelda leave its mark with the first game. It absolutely doesn't. But it becomes a very different beast and in my opinion an awkward lumbering beast i didn't play this game no scratch that i played this game when i was very young i played it through emulation when i was a kid but never made much of a dent in it because well it's very hard it's extremely difficult but also I, I i as a kid i don't think i was ready for it i was so kind of bamboozled by this odd zelda game this black sheep of a zelda game but in 2020 during the pandemic uh you know we're all finding things to do i could have wrote a novel that would have been good, you know, maybe did an online course. But no, I was like, I want to play the original two Legend of Zelda games because I want to finish them because I never had. I never had done it. I played them both, but I never finished them. And I'll get to it later on this list, but the original Legend of Zelda gave me the the warmest of tummies. I was I was like, I finally played this game and now I, I can finally like look at it for what it is and not just kind of my impressions of other people or its reputation. And I loved it. And then I did the same with Adventure of Link, and I hated it. A game I was, like, eternally fascinated by. And actually experiencing it, I just did not enjoy this thing. In fact, I hope I never have to play this fucker again, to be honest. And actually, I want to tread more lightly than that, because this game, like I said, has its uh, passionate fans. And of course, and if you grew up with this game, I get it. And, and like, you know, you don't often get to choose what games are kind of given to you when you're young. And I absolutely understand playing this game in the 80s or whatever and kind of unfurling the mystery of it because it's a very uh, vague game in its navigation. So I can imagine like growing up with this game and having very fond memories of uh, figuring out the secrets of its overworld and kind of um, conquering its dungeons which are extremely difficult. The combat in this game is extremely precise and difficult. In fact, uh, there's kind of the DNA of Zelda 2, The Adventure of Link, in uh, modern From Software games like, you know, your, your Dark Souls and even your, your Elden Rings and your Bloodborne. In fact, I would say the Zelda series as a whole is kind of a cousin to uh, the From Software games. But in terms of the kind of brutally difficult combat, you can kind of see a 2D version of Dark Souls in Adventure of Link, which is uh, learning enemy patterns and uh, enemies that hit very hard and you have very precise movements to kill them. So what I'm saying is, you know, on paper or, you know, someone else talking about it, I can see the love for Zelda 2. I absolutely can, but talking about this game for me is so much more fun than playing it because I had no fun playing this game. From almost start to finish, 
and I hate shitting on it because, like I said, it's it's super weird and cool and it's an oddity, but I just, man, no. I hope I never play this game again. Just not for me. And one of the biggest revelations of playing Zelda 1 after, you know, having not finishing it for, like, decades and playing all these other Zelda games and then going back and playing it was that it had this reputation for being... Um, obtuse and vague and it is those things i'll go into more details but the exploration in zelda 1 and kind of conquering the overworld and discovering things all these years later is still fantastic in my opinion uh, and zelda 2 isn't the overworld is dog shit it's just completely obtuse and there's no rhyme or reason to figuring out um how to navigate it and it has like jrpg style random battles like kind of random battles you can see the little enemy gugas on the map and they kind of chase you around if you hit into one you got it you you suddenly the game becomes 2d and you have to fight enemies so you're trying to you're getting a headache trying to navigate this world and all these enemies are coming at you and then the world trying to figure out how to navigate the world and solve some of the puzzles and do some of the parts or whatever is just it's just bad it's bad game design and then when you get into the dungeons themselves uh every single this whole game looks the same from start to finish it's it's, it's the same the whole time you're, you're, you're stuck, you're trapped in this game that looks the same, and the dungeons are just labyrinthine. No, not fun to unfurl, not fun to untangle, just kind of you go left and right, you hit a dead end, you're like, oh god, now i got to go the other way, and the path is just laid with deadly enemies along the way. And I don't hate the combat in this game, I respect its difficulty, but I found it hair-pullingly annoying. And I, after about two-thirds of playing this game, I gave up any semblance of trying to finish it in a, in a fair manner and i just started um spamming save states which is you know in, in when you're playing a game on a mod i was playing it on the wii u i believe so you can just uh save whenever you want which is not the intended game design but i was just like no i've given enough of my time and energy my blood sweat and tears to this um unnecessarily difficult nes game from the 80s and after years of having like heard about this game from now having played it like the things that people you know kind of um hold up as like the big differences like what it did like th this brought in proper towns um which you know the, the original zelda didn't you can in this you walk into towns and there was townsfolk walking around and it had a magic system and you could learn spells you know the first zelda didn't really have that and these are the things that people say were like a big amazing innovations in uh, in this in the sequel but now playing it all these years later I, I i don't the towns are all exactly the same and they're barren and they're charmless uh, the spells are just annoying and they're very interesting i just don't like this game and i'm not against anyone who does it's just i don't know maybe i was born in the wrong era i i can't get on board with it but in saying that i completely got on board the original legend of zelda and there's a bunch of tough as nails nes games that i adore i love the Mega Man games the castlevania games whatever i don't need to list hard games but i really to reiterate i really hope i never have to play this game again and talking about it on this podcast is me like putting it to rest uh best way to describe it super interesting to talk about a super interesting curio in one of gaming's most important franchises but i not only get why people might not like this game i i joined their mighty throng i really dislike this game number 18 is the legend of zelda four swords which is actually a little small add-on game that was included with the legend of zelda a link to the past when it was re-released on the game boy advance 
And yeah, it's not full game length, but it's always counted as one of the main Zelda games. And there's a lot of uh, Zelda spin-offs that I won't be including on this list. Maybe I should have said that more up front. The likes of the Hyrule Warrior games and stuff like Link's Crossbow Training and stuff like that. But I'll include Four Swords because it's always included as one of the main entries in the franchise despite being only a few hours long and add on to a release of a game. But it's a big, it's, a, it's sort of a big deal because this is the first time the Zelda series did multiplayer. And it's the first game to talk about on this list that's made by Capcom. Capcom swooped in and made some uh, Zelda games. They put their stamp on the franchise and uh, some of the Zelda games they made are fantastic. Can't wait to talk about those. And I have no problem with Four Swords. It's just, it's, just a, it's a minor treat. Um, it was made to showcase uh, the Game Boy Advance's link cable functionality where you and your buddies could link up your Game Boy Advances and play multiplayer games together. I think um, people looking back in that era will probably think of Pokemon much more than Zelda for this, but I like Four Swords. It's short and it's sweet, and it's also, um, unlike uh, Triforce Heroes, it is uh, fun to play by yourself, if only because it only, it only takes a few hours to complete. And I have so many games to get through, um, and Four Swords got a full-length kind of um, sequel, a full-length version of its all its ideas later on that I'll be talking about. I think I'll just leave it there and move on to number 17. Scratch that. I'm going to move on to 17 and 16 in one fell swoop because uh, I think for the first of two times, I'm going to lump these two Zelda games into, um, into one and just talk about them together. And I'm kind of uh, summing up a whole generation of Zelda here, a whole console generation. And that console would be the Nintendo DS with the two Nintendo DS Zelda games, The Phantom Hourglass and Spirit Tracks. And I have a ton of nostalgia and affection for the Nintendo DS as a console as a whole. Not childhood nostalgia, I was unfortunately budding into a young man at the time when the DS came out, so I didn't grow up with it. But uh, when I look back and think of the DS, I always think of like um, weird Japanese visual novels or like uh, the Ace Attorney games or Hotel Dusk or something like that. But sorry, the reason I'm saying this is I just want to emphasize that I loved the Nintendo DS. I have great time for it. But I never really drank the Kool-Aid. Never really was uh, following Nintendo's uh, lead in when they are talking about how their philosophy of how to make a Zelda game for the Nintendo DS. And that philosophy was that they didn't need the buttons to make a Zelda game. That they wanted to take this console, which was based around touchscreen mechanics, and have Zelda games that could only be played with the touchscreen mechanics. And I think that is great in theory. I think it's actually quite good in execution. I think the whole thing for me was just pointless and, you know, um, didn't add much. And that that's probably my biggest hot take with these two games. I never felt that taking the DS stylus and tracing a path for Link to walk on the screen with the stylus was, you know, better than uh, just using a D-pad and moving him around or using an analog stick. But that's not to say that the controls in these games aren't kind of fun and kind of cool. Like, I like that they, they, they endeavor to come up with fun items to use. Like, in the boomerang in this game, you trace a line on the screen, then you throw the boomerang and it follows that line. It's all kind of cool, if not terribly exciting innovations, in my opinion. But I kind of feel like that with a lot of Wii games as well. There's, like, a lot of Wii games that I love, some of my favorite games of all time, but... Now that the, the age of motion controls have moved on, I don't really miss the motion controls of, of a lot of the classic Wii games. I don't really miss that we're not getting games where you can do that a lot anymore. 
and I feel the same with uh with the, with the, with this DS game with these DS games uh these two Zelda games I kind of I don't miss that uh that control scheme like it's not something that I I kind of lament that they haven't done since uh since Spirit Tracks many years ago. While there are other DS games like if I play the, the the beautiful HD collection of Ace Attorney on my PlayStation Four I kind of wish I was playing it on the DS that's just the the ideal um, console for the, for those games. But some of the design philosophy is very apt. I like how a lot of um, the puzzles in these games are based around taking notes and drawing on maps. I think that's great. That's perfect for the DS, obviously, because you're literally writing on a screen. So I, I love games in general where you have to take notes. I think if I have to like bust out a pen and paper or open a notepad app on my phone or something like that to solve a puzzle in a game, I'm, I'm enjoying this game. I'm full in. And there's nothing um, too complicated in, in these two DS games, but... I do like that the puzzles require you to jot down things on your map, maybe take little notes. I think they did that excellently. That's something um, I think other Zelda games could do more as well. Even though we don't have stylus to write in screens anymore, I, do, I, I still think taking notes in games is, is, is always great. And designing puzzles around having, like maybe it might be too full on, too complicated, that the player has to take a note, write stuff down, commit, rather than committing to memory. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think jotting down notes is a... A cool little thing, especially when you're playing these cartoony little fantasy adventure games. Taking notes seems so apt, doesn't it? But outside of attempted gameplay evolutions that came from the hardware that these games were on, uh, there was other things that they tried to do to mix up uh, the Zelda formula. And I'll begin with Phantom Hourglass. And kind of the central thing about Phantom Hourglass is that it has a central main dungeon, a big tower that you return to um all through the game so you're on your little adventure and this is a sequel to the legend of zelda the wind waker so it's um it's a seafaring adventure uh you're you're on you're on a ship and uh, actually that's another cool thing you could do with the death screen is uh, the way that the sailing your ship or yet a steamship this time steamboat and the way with the way it worked you had to chart your course on the map with the stylus and then link with sail away great stuff but you go out on your adventures and you you'd complete dungeons as you do in all zelda games but you always have to return to this um, main dungeon called the Temple of the Ocean King. And you can unlock more floors uh, to, to scale this tower as you go on. But every time you return to this uh, dungeon, you have to begin it from the start again. And how the, how the design works is that you keep returning. You have more items that you've acquired from your adventures. You have you've, new things you've learned. So scaling this tower becomes easier every time with and you can take shortcuts or you just you're getting better at doing um these uh floors these rooms that's really good in theory i actually do like the idea of uh this i like this whole idea of, of a central dungeon you have to return to that becomes easier and quicker to navigate when you come back with more equipment uh, the main problem is that the temple of the ocean gods is a pain in the ass dungeon it has like all the things that are like annoying. It has enemies you can't kill. It has stealth sections. It's just not a fun dungeon to have to return to. So I think in concept, this it works for me. I like the idea, uh, but it's just never fun to kind of return to this dungeon. And I always kind of you know shuddered when I realized I was at a point in the game where I had to go back to it because it's actually just really a, not a fun uh, place to explore. Not a not a not a fun thing to conquer. But yeah, like I said, I think it's a good idea, which is great, which is which is great that Phantom Hourglass had a sequel, Spirit Tracks, where they swapped the the boat for a choo-choo. You're on a choo-choo train this time, you're like choo-choo, and that that's fun. But they came back to the central dungeon idea again. And yeah, that's one of the most wonderful things about sequels is that you have a chance to kind of maybe uh better an idea that didn't quite work the first time. And they had they had all the opportunities to kind of take their Temple of the Ocean King idea and and kind of nail it this time but 
they course corrected in all the wrong directions. They heard kind of maybe the fan outcries, what people weren't enjoying about that dungeon. And they made it a dungeon you had to return to over and over again. But they realized that people didn't like repeating um, the same floors. So they kind of skipped that part of it. So it's not, it, it, you don't really get the same sense of progression. What, what I think they needed to do was take the same idea from Phantom Hourglass but make it literally just make it a more fun dungeon get rid of all the annoying mechanics the stealth mechanics and the enemies you can't kill that you have to run from and all that uh, stop it from being a pain in the ass dungeon to actually play and then the the progression part of it would be fun they're returning to it and going oh i can i can traverse this pit now because i have this item oh i can skip this whole bit and kind of untangling the dungeon throughout the game because i think that's such a good idea but they i think they got too fearful of the backlash against it from phantom hourglass so they they didn't improve the one in spare tracks in any kind of interesting way in my opinion and it's a huge shame but look other than that these two are these are two very charming games uh phantom hourglass in particular has one of my favorite zelda characters like link always gets uh you know companions to join him on his adventure but you know there might be navi the fairy or you know Midna who's like some kind of shadow imp you know it's very rare for Link to team up with a middle-aged man which is what happens in Phantom Hourglass you team up with a pirate called Linebeck who's a coward and he has an arc through the thing where he gains his courage and that that's Zelda doesn't need complicated writing and that's perfect for me I, I love that character and um yeah they're kind of rough graphically they have a very nice graphic style kind of um um springboarding off of Wind Waker for the GameCube but um uh, the DS is kind of aged these days, but uh, and, and the graphics look a bit kind of rough. But I, I do appreciate the effort to kind of transpose that graphical art style onto the Nintendo DS. I think that their, their ambition was definitely in the right place. And in terms of my ranking, I think I'm going to put Spirit Tracks, the second one with the Choo Choo Train, as my number 17 and Phantom Hourglass as number 16. And the main reasons is I think Spirit Spirit Tracks is more disappointing because it had the opportunity to improve the formula in a, in a lot of ways and it didn't. So that kind of just makes it more disappointing. But on a more personal level, despite the fact that I enjoy calling it a choo-choo train, I actually don't enjoy the train in this game. It's it, it's a lot of fun ideas. Link wears a little conductor outfit. It's great. You can blow the whistle. It's fun. But um, yeah, you're literally on tracks and you have to kind of navigate the world through kind of... Um, just train tracks and there's annoying train enemies you have to fight and i actually didn't ex enjoy exploring that world at all and it's not really exploring it's more just navigating a series of tracks and i never found that fun even though putting link in a choo-choo train is such a worthy thing to do and i'm glad we live in a timeline where that happened but yes that's my next ranking it's spirit tracks and then phantom hourglass and we're going to move on from the ds era and actually now that we've moved on from those two games we're kind of we're kind of it's it's easy going now i i kind of don't have major major problems with any of the Zelda games from here on out I I have problems with them and I think I'm, I probably end up talking about the negatives just because you know they stand out a lot more in all these games I'm talking about which I think are just brilliant just brilliant games but the least brilliant of the brilliant games is number 15 it's the Legend of Zelda Four Swords Adventures which is the kind of full blossoming of the concepts that they came up with in the Legend of Zelda Four Swords and it, it was a GameCube sequel to that where you could um, play as four different links. And if you had four friends, you could uh, play four-player multiplayer. But you, you needed more than four friends because this was the time when, you know, like I said earlier on, uh, the link cable on the Game Boy Advance was, uh, was a whole big deal in linking Game Boy Advances together. But Nintendo were also trying this thing of linking the Game Boy Advance with the GameCube. 
for potentially exciting things, uh, game mechanics, you know. And what they came up with with for for Four Swords Adventures was that if you you could use the Game Boy Advance as a controller, so you hook it up to your GameCube, and anytime uh, Link is outside, you're on the TV screen. But if you go into a cave or a house or any interior, you'd end up on the Game Boy Advance screen. So it was kind of a precursor to the likes of the uh, the Wii U, definitely, and the DS with the kind of two screen functionality, uh, and you could choose to not do this if you'd like just play the gamecube controller and have it all on the tv screen as long as you were playing single player so if you wanted to play multiplayer every player had to have a game boy advance and like i said earlier on this is a common thing with multiplayer zelda games and this is the last multiplayer zelda game they're always just so unnecessarily difficult to wrangle together to play with multiplayer like even if you have the friends each friend would have to have a game boy advance and each friend would have to have a link cable that connects the game boy advance to the gamecube and that was just too much of an undertaking i'm sure some people had that but i mean it's just too much of an undertaking in terms of cost they can't just make this game and then go okay it's going to cost you this much to play it as a four-player experience and i kind of hate that but i can't quite hate um four swords adventures um i you know i'm we should hate it, maybe, because that is kind of... I'm just saying it out loud now. It's just not on, and it's it's kind of money-grubbing and um, kind of backwards. But I do have affection for this game. I did get to play this game multiplayer back in the day, not with four players, but uh, uh, two-player with my friend Mark Ronan. Shout-out if you're listening to this. We both had Game Boy Advances, and I had a ton of fun playing that two-player back in the day. But I've since played it single-player a couple of times, and it's actually really fun single-player too, which is kind of essential for me, I think, which unlike... Uh, Triforce Heroes, the previous game I talked about. Maybe now is as good a time as any to talk about the kind of two different style of Zelda games there are. There are kind of traditional 2D Zelda games. Um, well, they're, they're, these two styles of games are referred to as 2D Zeldas and 3D Zeldas, just for lack of better terms, but it doesn't necessarily mean that 2D games have 2D sprite graphics and 3D games. Are like, oh God, too complicated. 2D Zelda games are top-down from their perspective, and the 3D Zelda games, which began in, with Ocarina of Time, are kind of... Um, full 3d environments with the camera behind link so those are the two distinctive uh, types of zelda games and four swords adventures is weird for being a console zelda game with the 2d top-down perspective but um it completely works for the multiplayer and the main mechanic which is having four links on the screen at once so it's very clear clear and clean 2d sprite graphics i love the graphics of this game it's very um it's pushing it's pushing the gamecube to its limits in terms of of rendering 2d graphics which you didn't see much another great example would be paper mario the thousand year door another beautiful beautiful game from that era but what it kind of means is that you can have a lot of action on the screen at one time so if you're playing this game multiplayer it's chaotic there's bombs going off and there's there's kind of um you're you're solving puzzles together you're doing dungeons and you're solving puzzles and you're very much a team but there's a huge competitive aspect to this game where in each level you have to collect force gems and which is the kind of the currency of this game and it very much the game is pitting you against your teammates in terms of collecting more force gems. So it kind of turns this game into a very chaotic thing where you you're, you're yeah you're helping each other out, but you, like they like throwing a ton of force gems on the screen at the same time, and you'll be whacking each other with fire rods and throwing bombs at each other in order to stop each other from getting um, force gems. And it's really fun. Kind of reminds me of the kind of multiplayer games that I grew up with when I was a very very young child which were very much cooperative but you could kind of turn on each other like something like Streets of Rage games where you can just yeah you gotta fight together but you could whack each other with pipes anytime you wanted I always liked that in a multiplayer game the ability to immediately turn on your teammate 
but as a single player game you control all four different colored links as one and you can press buttons to put them into different formations so if there's enemies coming from all sides you can put them into kind of a diamond formation where they're they're swinging their swords you're kind of covering you know all the areas around your links and it works really well which is kind of why i categorize despite the flaws despite the how costly it is to play this game properly multiplayer i still categorize it as one of the brilliant zelda games because it's a super fun single player game if you can if you can't wrangle together um all the friends and all the technology to do this especially in this day and age where it's all antiquated technology you still have a really fun zelda game to play single player and it's not a wide open world it's not um you know exploring at your leisure it is separated into missions or levels which is a little bit sacrilege but it works for this game i think it is one of the hidden gems the, the most slept upon zelda games are it's definitely one because of its very nature definitely one of the least played ones and um i can't quite put it higher than this but i really like it and that's that that's all i'll move on welcome to behind the scenes of hey look listen where liam sheehan realizes that he's been getting the numbering incorrect for the zelda games so far this is because he didn't write down the list and he thought he could remember it in his brain. But his brain was not good enough. Now he must make the decision, will he go back and re-edit the things, the, the wrong numbers he said, or will he just continue on? But because you're hearing this, he's continuing on. So number 13 is a game that I think, in my heart, I want to put higher on this list. But also in my heart, I actually believe probably deserves to be lower on this list so i think 13 is kind of the place where i feel the most comfortable putting in because i can't put it higher because it's just simply not good enough and i can't put it lower because i'm always gunning for it i love this game I'm, i always stand up for it at any opportunity i can it's the legend of zelda skyward sword for the wii and i think it's important to look at this game through the lens of 2011 when it came out and these days where I think these days it's easy to look at it as an outlier a curio a strange entry in a big franchise where I think there was a lot of anxiety a lot of fear that Skyward Sword when it came out when it was the new Zelda game that it would come to represent what the Zelda series would become which clearly didn't happen you know now that we're in a world where you know, uh, Breath of the Wild has come out, and Breath of the Wild set the world on fire. Like Skyward Sword had almost zero influence on the direction uh, the franchise would take. So I think now it's easier to kind of you know look at it for what it is and maybe enjoy it for what it is more than when people were just like, "This is a weird Zelda game. Is this what Zelda games are going to look like from now on? This isn't my Zelda kind of thing." And I remember on the lead up to it, it was it was very much being touted as this big change for the Zelda series. So. So it wasn't unexpected that it would feel so different from uh, previous entries in the franchise. But despite all its oddness, I think now it, it just didn't it didn't change enough. It didn't make enough concessions. It didn't go in enough interesting directions. It's kind of stuck halfway between wanting to mix up the formula and be a kind of a new look, a new style of Zelda, and also being very kind of uh, slavish to the conventions of Zelda. So it, it exists in this awkward middle ground. And it's weird, if you look at um, Breath of the Wild, which obviously I'll get to later, that would come to be the big change, the big mix-up. It it would very much be inspired by the original Legend of Zelda, but for the most part, this was a huge shake-up and a huge revolution uh, of the um, Zelda formula. 
And that would come six years after Skyward Sword, where, where, where Nintendo, even in Skyward Sword, were saying we're mixing up the formula. And what you would see with Skyward Sword and the game that came out after Skyward Sword, which was the 3DS's A Link Between Worlds, was Nintendo tiptoeing into changing Zelda. I will, as I go on and talk about older Zelda games, I'll very much be talking about the Zelda formula, which I believe is ironclad. It's one of my favorite kind of um, spines to build a video game around ever. But because the Zelda franchise is so old, it was just not so much starting to so- show its age, but, you know, just getting a bit derivative, a bit samey. I, I was always of the opinion that as much as I I will just take a traditional Zelda any day of the week, I like it more than 99% of games. I do think Zelda needed a kick up the arse and needed, it needed to change itself. And what happened with Skyward Sword and A Link Between Worlds is that Nintendo were trying to do that, but they didn't do it enough, so you have it stuck in this middle ground. And that's um, a big problem for Skyward Sword, where it makes all these weird changes, but doesn't commit to them enough. One of the one of the things Nintendo were touting, they kept talking about, was blurring the line between the overworld and the dungeon of Skyward Sword. And that was a lot, and I remember... A lot in the preamble, if you'd read interviews with the developers and like the years or months leading up to that game, that was cited a lot as one of their inspirations for making this game. Whereas in a normal Zelda, you'd be out in the overworld, you'd be out in the towns, the world map, doing whatever. When you go into a dungeon, there's a very big distinction between the two styles of game, you know. And they wanted to, yeah, like I said, blur the lines between those things. And if that was the goal, I don't think Skyward Sword really does it in any kind of um, interesting, revolutionary way. What you get in my opinion, is a game with peaks and valleys in terms of uh, pacing, and even in terms of overall quality, a game that stops and starts a lot, a game that is very restrictive in the exploration, and uh, despite being set in the sky of all places, you have a bird you can fly around on floating islands, it is far from an open game, even by Zelda standards, it's very, um, yeah, restrictive and linear in comparison to other Zelda games. But to uh, digress for a second, I also think it's a very vibey Zelda game. It's a very vibey game in general. It it's very bright and colorful. They they used a graphical style with it that where things in the distance, like anything in the distance, would kind of blur almost, and it kind of looked like impressionistic painting or kind of oil painting. It's a it's one of the prettier games of the era for sure, and it's the first Zelda game to use a full or- orchestral score, um, which kind of adds to it, and it's kind of sweeping and romantic the game it's bright and romantic and it's and it like a lot of zelda games are based around the relationship between you know your hero link and the princess zelda and how they're tied by destiny but this is the first one where they're kind of into each other there's kind of a romance and it's it's kind of a chast anime romance it's played for more cutesy than anything else but it's nice and yeah like i said it gives um the game its whole vibe and i i like being in skyward sword like I said, Skyward Sword is set in the sky, but there's the the whole mechanic is you you're up in the world in the sky, but you can jump down to this mysterious surface below where the bread and butter of the game takes place. And I'll get to that in a second. But in in the in the, in the sky, there's a town called Skyloft, and it be kind of becomes your hub. It's a place you return to a lot in the game. And if 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 a game is going to follow the structure of having you return to a place over and over again uh, between you know your quests, between whatever to stock up in items or whatever i like um skyloft as one of those it's very calm and chill and nice and pleasant and one of the things i like about the legend of zelda in general as a series is that it never really falls into kind of traditional stereotypical fantasy you never walk into a shop and he's like hello what can i what can i do for you sir 
cross, cross my palms with silver and you know like like in an elder scrolls game or something nothing wrong with that i always like that zelda errors on the side of goofy uh it's one of my favorite things about um the vibe the atmosphere of these games and i love skyloft for that i there's a there's a marketplace a bazaar in skyloft that's one of my favorite video game locations and it's nothing like terrific or anything like that it's just it's just so charming it's just that you know you, no matter where you turn in there it's like it, they, it's, they have a shopkeeper selling potions but he's not just a shopkeeper he's like a husband who's also trying to he has his baby tied to his back and he's trying to coo his baby as he's trying to kind of sell you potions and and there's um an item storage girl and over the course of the game the more you go to her she starts <laughs> developing a crush on you it's very cosmetic things but it's just it, it just adds to the charm of that game and it's why i like being in zelda games and i like being in skyward sword in general and when i kind of think of skyward sword i i tend to think of these aspects of it more than the falls with the game itself and when you go below the clouds where like i said the bread and butter of the games happens you don't have big open worlds you kind of have more intricately designed levels there you know they, they actually remind me more of levels from like mario 64 or something like that and there's only three of them but i actually think they're underrated i think they're actually very well designed I think um, there's three of them. Uh, uh, there's there's a forest, a volcano, and a desert. And the volcano and the desert in particular are kind of very interesting because you, when you first land on them, they're linear and you're kind of working your way through them. But they open up and become non-linear in, in cool ways like getting an item that allows you to traverse it better or something as simple as changing the environment slightly. And since Skyward Sword is built around returning to places, which is a kind of a controversial aspect of it, all through the game you're kind of just returning to these three main areas which is not quite as exciting maybe as you know discovering new areas but i think skyward sword bolsters that by having the air the level design of the levels evolve over time and in in your ability to traverse them differently and in your ability to unlock new areas of them and i like the way that that volcano and that particularly the desert the way that they begin as linear things but by the end of the game you have the means to con- to completely explore them at your whim and i think that's um, a cool piece of level design actually anytime skyward sword is set in the desert portion of its world uh, it kind of soars um it sings that uh, there's a lot of great creativity in it which is uh, like 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 i was just saying when i think of skyward sword it really is like the cool things and the nice things about it that kind of outweigh things that don't quite work there's a lot of brilliant time travel puzzles in this desert world there's there's, uh, items called time shift stones that you can activate and they they change the area around them from past to present which changes like technology and things but it's like a a puzzle light motif that goes through the whole game and the way that they add on to this uh, simple mechanic this this these time shift stones uh, throughout the game and evolve it is is brilliant so there's a lot of really good stuff in this game and there's a lot of some of the best Zelda dungeons of all time are in this game. Um, the sand ship is like is, is a ship out in the desert that's unlike any kind of space you ever explore in, in, in Zelda games like a go on. But it is a game that kind of steps on its own toes an awful lot. And kind of one of the main ways it does that is it, it kind of comes from an era where Nintendo were just very like nintendo have always been caught up with the idea that their games are for everyone and of course their games are for everyone but they used to be better at balancing that than they were in this era where they were very kind of almost like nanny camming their games like they really really wanted to make sure that people wouldn't get stuck or anyone could figure this thing out 
And that's a, a great thing to do, but you know, options are always a good idea, so I would like the option for Skyward Sword not to spoil itself at every turn, which it does, mainly through your um, robotic companion, Fi, who is like Link's companion through the game, who will, you know, talks too much. She comes out and just chats to you and slows the game down to a halt and kind of ruins a lot of the puzzles of that game by over-explaining to it, giving you too many hints. And... It, it really is that bad you know it really is it really is a dark shadow over the entire game that kind of makes it worse just categorically worse now this was uh, um an aspect of the game that was improved with the switch remake but another thing i didn't state out right at the beginning of this video was that i'm going by the original versions of these games i think that's the purest way to rank these other games so yes the nintendo did eventually 10 years later give us a version of the game that um improve this aspect but that doesn't really take away from the fact that in 2011 like this wasn't common game design this was this stood out this stood out like a sore thumb in 2011 this was something awful this was like some really bad design in my opinion and of course the elephant in the room in regarding this game would be the motion controls which this was a wii game and required the wii motion plus to play so link's sword was um, controlled by you swinging around around the wii remote and that is a hugely divisive part of this game and in my opinion, I really like it, as long as we're talking about the sword play. Because not only did they add motion, motion controls to the sword fighting, they added it into every single thing they could when you're flying your loft wing, which is the bird, when you're playing mini games, whatever, tacked on motion controls. And everything that is not the sword play in this game, I would get rid of. I would get rid of the motion controls. And yes, the Switch version did do that as well, thankfully. But there was still 10 years this game existed when you, you, if you wanted to replay it, you had to fuck around with a lot of nuisancey, tacked on emotion controls. And I, I've always hated that. I would give an option to use an analog stick with every part of this game, but I think they really wanted to make the sword play motion control based. And I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it a, a generous 80% of the time. For me, it works. One of the main problems with it is uh, what I've observed by replaying this game, perhaps more than uh, maybe it deserves is that the main enemy, the main kind of grunt enemy, the Bokoblin, is actually the least fun enemy to fight in the game. He's the least, he's the most common enemy and the, and, and the least, uh, he's, the, the, he's the worst way to convey the motion controls, the Bokoblin enemy. So he's very nuisancey, he blocks your attacks and he's frustrating to fight. And I'm calling him he, they, there's a, there's a legion of them, they're the most common enemy in the game, while there's other enemies in the games that are so fun and satisfying to kill in motion controls, because there are, some of them are mini puzzles, just like, just small things like a, a, a plant with a mouth, but if the mouth is, is vertical, you slice it vertically, if it's horizontal, you, you slice it horizontally, it's really small stuff, or these little false enemies that they, they they block with a big stone arm, but they're, they're little shitheads, so they start taunting you from behind the stone arm, they stick their head out, and you have to kind of aim your sword, at, depending on what, where their head is poking out, and just strike them. And I think if you go in and just start waving the Wii Remote around like a mad idiot, it's not going to work. It's, it's supposed to be kind of delicate, precise sword strikes, and when you kind of gel with that, it's very fun and very satisfying, and one of the, yeah, one of the better things about this game, at least one of the most distinctive, it's just that, like I said, um, it doesn't work all the time, unfortunately. The, the, the Wii, just by design, does not work all the time. And I think a main thing that not enough people talk about is the main enemy, the Bokoblins, are just a pain in the ass to fight. And also, the first boss you ever fight in the game, Girahim, is also not a very good showcase for the motion control. So they kind of shot themselves in the foot um, by having like the main enemy in the first boss be 
kind of hurdles you have to kind of weather and get over to enjoy the motion controls. But I think if you can get over some of the bad aspects of Skyward Sword, I think it's a game that kind of um, it deserves it deserves a bit of love, and I'll, I'll, I'll always stand up for it. And for 12 and 11, I'm lumping them together as one, but, uh, you know, more deservedly this time because these games were literally released at the same time. They are a pair. They are the Game Boy Colors, The Legend of Zelda, Oracle of Ages, and Oracle of Seasons. And these were the first Zelda games to be outsourced to Capcom. So they are made by Capcom rather than, than Nintendo. Uh, Capcom being the creators of Street Fighter, Resident Evil, your Monster Hunter. And in my opinion, Capcom proved an innate understanding of the Zelda franchise at the time. And they just absolutely nailed it. I don't think these are perfect Zelda games. But if someone came up to me and said, like, oh, my favorite Zelda games are the Oracle of Ages or Oracle of Seasons, I would just want to befriend that person and I'd stalk them online. I just want to, what? But I, I, just, I, I would love that because I think I, I, I can see people kind of liking these more than um, 12 and 11 on this list. But like I said, I love so many Zelda games. I haven't them in 12 and 11 doesn't mean they're anyway bad. I, I think these games are great. They were going for a kind of a Pokemon situation with this and it didn't end up quite being as, well, definitely not being as iconic and memorable and in the in the uh, uh, pop cultural memory as uh, those Pokemon games. But the idea was to release two games at one time that could link up to each other in ways. So in, in like how Pokemon, you could buy either Pokemon Red or Blue and eventually Yellow and you could trade Pokemon through link cables and yada yada. You know how it works. They made these games to be... If you play Oracle of, let's uh, let's just say for argument's sake, you play Oracle of Seasons first. If you get Oracle of Ages and link it up, you can, Oracle of Ages will become a sequel to Seasons. So whichever one you play first is the first game, whichever one you play second will be the second game. And the two stories would link up and they would tell a full story. And other than that, in a much less cool way, if your friend had one of the other games, if you had Oracle of Seasons and he had Oracle of Ages, you could trade kind of items, uh, these kind of badges, things, but that's kind of not that cool. This whole idea of having two games that link up into one is interesting. It is hanging out on the side of Nintendo trying to take more money from you again, as they often do. That's another argument. It could be a whole podcast episode whether Nintendo's... um, and Game Freak kind of set up for releasing two Pokemon games at a time and having Pokemon games like, well, the, the, the balance of is, is this a good thing? Is it cool that you can trade? Is it just money grubbing? And they tried it once with Oracle of Ages and Oracle of Seasons. And I, I, think it's, I think it's cool, especially since it's a one-off. It was originally designed to be three games. One of them had to get canned, so it just ended up being two games. And the kind of ways um, they were advertised as being distinct from each other was that if you bought Oracle of Ages, it was more a kind of puzzle oriented orientated and if you bought oracle of seasons they were it was more kind of action orientated and they both had elements of both but that's how they say and i haven't played them now i think yeah that does that does ring true but not as much as you think you're still balancing uh, the two things but the most complicated dungeons are definitely an oracle of ages and the more kind of elaborate kind of just gauntlets of enemies definitely do pop up in oracle of seasons but Capcom came up with two really brilliant mechanics for both the games. So, um, you know, if you were like me and you, um, you you just could only get one at the time, you know, I kind of make a choice uh, when I was a kid. You know, you, you you were getting cool games no matter what. There wasn't a really a bad, like, I will decide at the end of this which one, which one I prefer, but it, there wasn't really a bad one or a good one or anything close to that. Oracle of Seasons is built around a mechanic of you can change the whole world between four seasons as you go on. 
changing it from winter, autumn, summer, spring, and it changes the world in interesting ways. In Oracle of Ages, you can jump between two different timelines. That's not the first time Zelda has done time travel malarkey, but this is kind of the first time it's done one in a way that you're jumping like generations and and it changes the world dramatically and you can alter the future and the past and yada, yada, yada. Good stuff. Very good game design stuff. These are 2D top-down Zelda games on the itty-bitty Game Boy Color, so they're very basic. And one of my least favorite things about these two games, and one, one of the things I think is their biggest negative, is their overworlds, uh, their world maps. And I'll, I'll talk about this more when I start talking about other 2D Zelda games that came out before this. But the, the, the overall world of 2D Zelda games, what's great about them sometimes is that they're almost puzzles unto themselves. And that when you come out of a dungeon with a new item, you open up a lot of... Uh, new avenues to explore and you kind of have to use your brain and your memory to remember where can I okay now I have these now I have this whatever I have this bow where can I go to use this bow how can I open up the world oh I can get here now and Oracle of Ages and Seasons has that obviously and it has their two brilliant mechanics but it kind of relies on more kind of for lack of a better uh, term jumping to my brain kind of story driven moments to drive the progression of the overworld forward so rather than coming out of a dungeon and me finding out I have to use this item here I walk to a place and oh a story moment will happen no now now there's a kangaroo i can talk to and now and now i can get into the kangaroo's pouch and jump across this place and that is literally a thing that happens in this game and other zelda games that i've hired in this list are guilty of this as well to some degree but none as much as these two games and so what i'm trying to kind of get at is that when i'm kind of analyzing these two zelda games and when i'm kind of weighing what i like about them and what i don't and there's actually nothing i don't don't like about them straight up but i think their dungeons are better than their overworld is what i'm lumbering towards i think 2d zelda game overworlds world maps whatever you want to call them were definitely superior in previous zelda games but what i often forget i played these two replayed these two games recently enough and what i very much had forgotten is actually the quality of the dungeons in these games and that's kind of what my main thing i want to talk about with these two games i think and these games came out in, I believe, uh, 2001. And I, I'm, as a, as a blanket statement, I'm going to say, I think this might be the last time that there were Zelda dungeons that were quite difficult, like mean in their difficulty. And that can be a negative for some people. But I, as I will definitely talk about more as we go on, I tend to like a lot of the dungeons that are kind of unliked by certain um type of people who don't like being stuck who don't like being confused i like twisty level design that you have to kind of almost <laughs> kind of make a partnership with the levels and you have to figure it out you have to kind of unfurl it and these two games have fantastic ones they really require you to kind of gain an understanding of the layout of the levels like a, a really good kind of microcosm of that is there's these turnstile mechanics which are hard to kind of describe but words without having a visual on the screen or anything but you walk into this turnstile and it turns you and it turns you into a like if you walk into it from the left it might cough you out to the right but you can't go back through that you're you've kind of locked yourself behind you but if you if you enter it from like the, the bottom or the top it can turn you in different directions this is very hard to explain but getting to the other side of these turnstiles might mean having to walk through the entire dungeon and figure out kind of a twisty turny way to get around so these dungeons are obsessed with the layout the intricacies of the layout and for me personally i love that and having played so many zelda games and going back and playing oracle of ages and oracle of seasons like two years ago i loved how mentally taxing these dungeons were i really did i just i, I, I forgot how difficult they were and how and uh, how like 
dungeons would would kind of gain a better balance of holding your hand and letting it go sometimes as, as this franchise would go on but i don't know maybe you know that's probably the better way to do it but i can err on the side of more difficult please i think overcoming a challenge over overcoming challenge overcoming a puzzle is is much more satisfying from a gameplay point of view when you have to kind of work at it we all love playing games to relax but um being engaged uh, by a game being challenged by a game is much better than relaxing and playing a game in my opinion so I just got to get a shout out to those dungeons. These whose games they're excellent. These two games they're excellent. There's one dungeon in Oracle of Ages called Jabu Jabu's Belly that I was stuck on for about an hour and a half, which is great. I don't get stuck in Zelda dungeons anymore. It was fantastic. I absolutely loved it. Now there is a kind of a negative side to this, where the, like I said, these are Game Boy Color games, which means they're they're very uh, simplistic 2D graphics on a tiny screen. So I, I wasn't replaying these on Game Boy Colors, but I imagine solving intricate <laughs> geography based uh puzzles in in a dungeon might be difficult when you're squinting down at the tiny uh game boy color screen but i uh, more um more importantly it doesn't always convey what it's trying to do like 3d graphics that can be much better at conveying things such as uh verticality and uh i think they might capcom might have been a bit too big for their britches in designing some of these dungeons like that one i just uh, mentioned there jabu jabu's belly I love that dungeon and I really enjoy doing it, but it's all built around changing a water level that you know can change between four floors and 2D graphics on the Game Boy Color it doesn't convey the kind of shifting waters as well as you know an older game, Ocarina of Time, did in the N64, mainly because Ocarina of Time has 3D graphics that can convey that very easily. But despite all that, I still um, would recommend these two games to Zelda fans who might have played them for their dungeons mainly i think they're brilliant and because i prefer big twisty complicated dungeons and ages is the one that has slightly more twisty complicated dungeons i'm going to rank these as oracle of seasons at number 12 and oracle of ages at number 11 um there's a lot of talk talk there's a lot of rumors online that uh, these games are getting a remake for the switch and i hope hope it's not just um fans in an echo chamber hope there's some truth to it because i think it'd be great for um new fans to discover these ones they're kind of locked away on the game boy color they're they're definitely underrated zelda games they're great and as we move on to number 10 we're actually sticking with capcom it's another capcom made uh, zelda game in fact it's the last capcom made zelda game that's going to be on this list and it is the legend of zelda the minish cap for the game boy advance and it has to be stated that I am, uh, because maybe because of the era I grew up in, I'm a big fan of a certain graphical style. I'm, I'm a big fan of chunky 16-bit 2D sprite graphics. Uh, I grew up with like the Sega Mega Drive and the Super Nintendo and stuff like, stuff like that, so I love that. But I really have a big place in my heart for the Game Boy Advance, which is, you know, more powerful than a Super Nintendo, and it was kind of... A great little console for really lush sprite graphics and Minish Cap is the last 2D proper 2D Zelda game we're not just for the sake of argument we're not going to count Four Stars Adventures which came out on a console console which came out on a, a the more powerful GameCube it was it's the last proper Zelda game that went for 2D sprite graphics which kind of leaves it in a kind of um for now anyway just kind of eternally preserved you know it, 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 there's other 2d zelda games that came out after it but if you're looking for this particular thing a 2d sprite zelda game you have to go all the way back to 2004 for the minish cap and because you know the 2d zelda games that followed the minish cap as well were the two ds ones 
um, Phantom Hourglass and Spirit Tracks, which were such, you know, shakeups, such their very own thing. And then after that, you got A Link Between Worlds on the 3DS, which is, oh, I'll get to that. What I'm saying is, as a brand new 2D Zelda game with 2D sprite graphics, you kind of have to go all the way back to 2004 to the Minish Cap, which is why I think, you know, I'm not going to say this is like, I was going to say why this game is held up on a pedestal. The reason why it's held up on a pedestal for a lot of fans is because it's actually quite brilliant. But I think it is because it it is kind of this perfectly preserved thing. And, you know, we haven't got this thing since in exactly this form. And for people who, who might find this the purest version of the Zelda franchise, it's obviously going to be very important. But it has much more um, feathers in its cap than that. I think this is a, a really great game with um, a, a killer central mechanic, which is the fact that Link can turn really small and uh, and regular size. So he can go really small. He can find this uh, secret world that exists within his world uh, where these people call the Minish inhabit a little, little borrower people. And I think they come up with really kind of interesting, cool um, ways, cool levels, cool cool design and how to kind of um, balance like having a miniature world existing within the world. For example, just a really small example, the very first boss you fight in the game is just a regular enemy who you've been fighting all the way through the dungeon, but because you shrink, suddenly he's massive and just stuff like that. And it gets way more intricate as it goes on. And I don't think personally the dungeons in this are as good as Capcom's previous two games, the Oracle games. I do think they are more balanced and I do think they are a better kind of um, smorgasbord for different types of Zelda dungeons. And that's another kind of great thing about the Minish Cap as being this kind of avatar of classic, uh, classic unfussy Zelda is that you, you kind of have a dungeon for everyone in this. You have the ones that are a little bit more complicated level wise that have you kind of backtrack a lot and kind of make mental maps you have the ones that are almost completely linear by design and it's just more like a series of rooms and gauntlets and puzzles to get you in a linear fashion you don't really have to use your noggin for it and you can just kind of be funneled through it and you have i was going to call them like i was almost going to say these are the middle ground of good zelda dungeons but they're not they're just a brilliant representation of zelda dungeons even though i don't think any any of them would be like in my all-time favorite dungeons they're just a great representation and i think minish cap is going to continue to be this almost mythical thing this almost mythical entry in the zelda franchise until nintendo make a straight up 2d zelda game again i mean 2d graphics sprite graphics or or if they release it because it's another kind of old zelda game that's kind of trapped it was a game boy advance game it was re-released on the wii u but i don't think there's any way to play it now without emulating it and i actually think it's low-key very secretly one of the best entry points into the zelda series i think by playing the minish cap you get a very good indication of classic zelda and you get a very palatable version of classic zelda and i think nintendo are doing a disservice by not having this game readily available because if, they, if it was more readily available, I'm going to talk about what I think are the best Zelda games to get into this franchise as I go on, I think. But if this game was more readily available, I think Minish Cap would be a perfect entry point into the Zelda franchise. And now for number nine, we're going all the way back. The OG, the original Legend of Zelda. The formula, the structure that would define the Zelda series would be solidified in the third entry, uh, A Link to the Past, upcoming. So, the series doesn't owe as much as you might think to the original entry. It is some somewhat of a, an individual entry, which is odd to think. But of course, the bedrock is very much formed here. You're the hero Link, off to rescue the Princess Zelda from the evil Ganon. You're collecting 
shards of the Triforce. It's all there. That that's all window dressing. In terms of the gameplay, you're exploring a big overworld and you enter diverse subterranean levels called dungeons. It's just that it's just that the it hasn't been given its proper form yet. The de- the dungeons themselves aren't really kind of uh, puzzles to be solved through level design. They're just kind of rooms where you go and you fight enemy, enemy, enemy. The only thing, the only type of puzzles you'll get are blowing up certain walls with bombs and the walls aren't marked so it's just kind of a crapshoot but the main thing that uh, Zelda 1 did differently from like almost every game in the franchise is is truly open-ended from the start you just begin on a screen beside a cave you can walk into that that cave and get your sword and then you can go anywhere you want the game does not hold your hand at all and certainly there's a certain fraternity of Zelda fans who've always like preferred that over what the series would become and then perhaps what it became again with 2017's Breath of the Wild many, many decades later. From my position, I honestly believe that the structure, the kind of more rigid, maybe less open structure that was um, developed in the third game A Link to the Past is superior to the more open-ended nature of the first Zelda but I finally finished this game start to finish in 2020 like I said and it is much better than I thought it was I I will admit that outright I kind of had this opinion about the original Zelda that it was um important and uh you know influential to not only the Zelda series but the gaming industry in general but it was very antiquated and it is indeed it is but not to the degree that I thought and it's like, yeah, put simply, it's a much better game than I thought for almost all my life. And I can't believe I'm putting it this high on the list above, like, you know, your Minish Caps and your Oracle of Ages, Oracle of Seasons. I did truly love this game when I finally played it. And it was one of my favorite, um, probably gaming moments of my life was finally just sitting down and doing this thing from start to finish and kind of realizing its real worth and how good it really is. And in terms of classic video games from the 80s and even before the 80s I think it's on the forefront of the ones that I recommend every gamer to play to at least try out I think not only like I said is it important and influential and ahead of its time and revolutionary and all that good shit it's just still super enjoyable to a degree and this game came out in a very different era of gaming and, and a time when things were done differently and uh uh, technology obviously and the culture around gaming was very different so it was very much developed in a time when it was completely normal to um, have um, intentionally obtuse vague games because I think the intention or at least it certainly became the intention with a lot of developers was that gamers children or adults whoever was playing games would kind of um, discover things together through conversation through discourse through the culture that would emerge around a video game so the legend of zelda is almost aggressively too much obtuse for its own good it's it's it like in future zelda games you'd see a very clearly marked wall with crumbly rocks where you have to blow up a rock there is none of that in the original zelda it will just be a random nondescript wall if you have to burn a bush there's a hundreds and hundreds of bushes in this game it, you, it's sometimes it's very hard to tell what bush might have a secret passage hidden underneath it that's not really good game design in my opinion it leads to a lot of tedium it leads to a lot of trial and error you know and it's not very fair but like I said, when a culture developed around the game, people would talk. You'd, uh, your friend would tell you, I discovered this, I discovered this. And furthermore, there'd be publications like Nintendo Power and stuff like that. And the Nintendo Helpline, which is a thing you could call up. Games are kind of designed to be kind of solved this way. Not just from the game itself, but by uh, finding different avenues through the, the culture of the game. 
So it was the kind of normal thing to maybe have to buy an issue of Nintendo Power that would have a secret in it. And here's an article about a secret rock or a secret wall you can blow up in Legend of Zelda. Uh, here's a here's a secret room in this dungeon. That was the normal thing. But I think, great, I'm all about that. And if you are, you know, let's be honest, an old, old person at this point, no. But if you grew up playing The Legend of Zelda, I imagine that would be a huge memory for you, a huge good memory, a huge memory of playing the game that would come to find playing that game. But playing it in a modern time, this game was too obtuse for me, too too secretive for its own good. So this might be sacrilegious to some, but I played it with a map on my phone. I went online and found a map of Hyrule on my phone that literally had every secret marked on it. Not only every secret marked on it, but every secret of what was in the secret, where did they, I could get 50 rupees here, I could get the candle here, I could get the raft here. So that kind of takes away a lot of the mystery element of the game. But my, it is my opinion that the mystery element of this game is too difficult and it makes the game too laborious. And I'm not saying that the game is constantly laborious. There's some brilliant um, early kind of uh, uh, navigational puzzles in this, you know, in the way that it can leave you breadcrumbs and stuff. Like a, a mysterious man might give you, might make reference to a waterfall and you will just kind of follow a little 8-bit river, you know, up until you find a waterfall and then you'll find a secret in that i a secret behind the waterfall i'm way into stuff like that and i don't think i'm not going to write off this game as completely outdated completely antiquated there's some good stuff in it but as a whole percentage wise a little bit too much of it is antiquated so i gave myself that map and that is the way i would recommend playing this game personally not because i think we're in a new era of gaming you're not really going to because i think if you get stuck these days in a game let's be honest you're going to look up what to do so Games are meant. Games aren't really meant to be designed to um, get you stumped anymore. Because developers want you to um, have fun with the game, engage with the game. They don't. As soon as you're looking up something online, you're not engaging with the game anymore. So while it might be sacrilegious to a certain amount of the Zelda One fan base to kind of play it this way, it's how I recommend it. And I think if you do play it this way, the Zelda One is still incredibly palatable, incredibly like just good in this day and age. It's like it's it's very good. And like I said, I dropped the kind of mystery element for me. It, for me but I, I found it um still hugely challenging uh the dungeons are hugely challenging and it just alleviated that kind of unnecessary headache part of it and by playing it this way and I didn't do anything else I didn't use any save states with this one you know if I died I went back to the beginning of the dungeon I played it fair I played it fair like that because it felt fair the difficulty felt gauged and as long as I cheated with the map I found the navigation in this world and kind of Figuring it out and opening it up felt good to me, which is why I felt okay to kind of play this game without any save states. Well, with Zelda 2, I was like, save states, save states. I, I'm sick of this. I need. I want this game to be done. I was almost just kind of rounding off my kind of uh, finishing the Zelda games because I've just, <laughs> even though I don't feel like I finished Zelda 2 properly because I cheated on it so much, um, I just wanted to get it done. But with Zelda 1, when I turned it off and it's little Link and little Zelda with little smiley faces, I got butterflies. I genuinely felt like I'd played... It's like I was going to call it hidden gem. Of course, it's not a hidden gem. It's one of the most singularly famous games ever made. But I just I never engaged with it fully. I waded into it a little bit. I got a taste of it. I got a taste of it enough to know what the original Zelda was, where it came from, and then just decided this is good, but it's not as good as the series it birthed. And you know, I'm putting it at that whatever I said number nine. And you know, there's a bunch of Zelda games I prefer over it. Yet I still think it's so worthy. More so than a lot of beginnings of classic franchises, I think certainly more than the likes of Final Fantasy, 
the likes of Metroid. I think maybe the only one I might have above it in terms of importance and in terms of how well it holds up from at least uh, Nintendo franchises would be Mario himself, that first Mario game. But I really recommend for um, video game aficionados or anyone who just wants to like discover an old game because, you know, these things are 40 plus years old now, you know, some of them and... And Zelda is just an important piece to the kind of that the 80s era of gaming. And if you want to discover it, uh, I think it's so playable and it's so it's actually so fun. And like I said, I cheated a little bit with an old map, but I kind of recommend you do, too, because I think you kind of I don't know, you'll see that game through a kind of a less frustrating prism almost. Um, I kind of hope I'm conveying my kind of happiness well enough here because I'm so happy to not only uh, have played this game finally now and have it, you know, done, but, uh, you know, my past self would be very surprised I'd have it this high on this list. I do think it's uh, it's aged like wine. It's a wonderful game. So number eight, and I think the difficult thing about doing lists like this and any list of anything, uh, especially, you know, about pop culture is you're kind of being kind of led by both your heart and your head and you're being led by the the things that you grew up with so like i said earlier on ocarina of time for the nintendo 64 in 1998 was my first ever zelda game and sorry that's not the game i'm putting at number eight so a kind of you know my opinions perhaps of the series might have kind of sprouted from that kind of um formative point but i'm very much into the idea of not ignoring nostalgia when talking about games like this that it should be a part of it and you'll find you kind of you know you start talking about games and anything movies or books from a true place of love when you don't kind of abandon those ideas when you try to be all kind of you know academic about it you know well this part of this game is aged here you kind of have to find a way to balance that but i believe you should let um kind of your own affection for things that you grew up with or things that you loved when you were young to kind of you know be a a big driving factor which i'm doing for this list absolutely i'm not going to deny it But I do believe in the kind of grand landscape or whatever of the Zelda franchise, there are games that are kind of almost totems. They're the kind of iconic defining ones of the series, the kind of the pillars. And I'm not even counting the original Zelda on this because the original Zelda is just a little bit different from um, when uh, it formed into its more rigid structure. And I think there's three games in particular and I think depending on when you were born, you usually, one of these ones is going to be one of your favorites. One of these three. They're kind of the the most classic Zeldas almost in a way. The most kind of uh, emblematic of everything that's good about Zelda. And I think how you'd rank these three games or where you'd rank them on the grand list of Zelda games depends on when you were born. And I'm doing all this preamble because I think if, I don't know, Zelda fans were listening, this might be a controversial placement um, for some people, maybe people who are a little bit older than me, um, it's often regarded as the best Zelda game. And I, when I when I was growing up, when I was uh, kind of in my teens, I used to hang out on a lot of um, kind of you know Zelda websites, Zelda forums. That was that was the kind of person I was. You know, I was an active Zelda forum user because I just loved that shit. And that was a time in the two thousands when this game would have been just over ten years old. So there would be a lot of people maybe hanging out on the internet at that time who that was their that was it was their core zelda game so you could not say a bad thing about this game without being shunned in the zelda community and at least that's my memory of it and that always happens you know things get old you know 
things are always rediscovered as as an old man i'm shocked how the internet has like i i think the star wars prequels are garbage but they're so loved now i think the andrew garfield spider-man movies are terrible but you know a certain man certain group of people are now growing up and that's that was theirs so what i'm lumbering towards here is that back in the day you couldn't say i i was shunned for saying that i don't think the legend of zelda linked to the past is the best zelda game in fact i'm putting it at number eight but you you in some places you just can't say that you cannot say that because it's it's for for a bunch of people the zelda game and from my perspective it's probably the most important zelda game um even more so than zelda one so much of what i love about zelda rests on the shoulders of this game but I kind of said a similar thing on my Final Fantasy list about Final Fantasy 4. And that's not coincidental. That Final, like, like A Link to the Past, Final Fantasy 4 is a Super Nintendo game. And I did not grow up with a Super Nintendo. I had to uh, rediscover Super Nintendo games when I was a little bit older. A few years after they'd come out. And like Final Fantasy 4 is not one of my favourite Final Fantasy games. But it is the kind of thing that blossomed the, the, the series into what it became. And the link to the past, I can't hate it. Obviously, it's number eight. I love this game, but I also can't quite love it than any of the games higher on this list because, as important as it is, I think it was bettered by its legacy, so to speak. But everything about it, like it almost gives me shivers. Like this, the music, the graphics, uh, and the, the gameplay loop, its structure. Like it, this is this is where it all started. This is where proper Zelda started. The overworld with very diverse dungeons that had um, there were puzzles to solve onto themselves that were all dis- all very distinct from each other. It's just that to kind of begin with, like the negative. It's just that I think a lot of the um, more kind of maybe surface level stuff, maybe more cosmetic stuff that I love about the Zelda series. Its charm, its personality, whatever way you want to say it, its vibe isn't really present in A Link to the Past for me yet. I don't think there's a single memorable NPC. In a link to the past, while well, I was, I think the best Zelda's are full of goofy ass, memorable characters, and that's a kind of minor in the grand scheme of things. But when you start adding it up, I just think, yeah, I think future Zelda games are have more personality than a link to the past, and I, th- I, I, I kind of would die on the rock of saying that. And that's, you know, you wouldn't think it, but that's a huge, um, it's a huge negative against it for me. And despite a lot of um, ideas being pioneered in this game, they're not quite uh, mastered yet. I think. Um, the next 2D Zelda game, which would be on the Game Boy, has the better dungeons. For example, I think the dungeon formula would just be sculpted even better, and I'll get to that when I get to that game. But in saying that, when you go back and play A Link to the Past now, it is kind of unique in a way because the ideas that it formed were solidified in the next game, the game after the next, until you know the Zelda formula became very rigid. Rigid. It became very regimented and you kind of started seeing the same thing but that th- these ideas hadn't been kind of set so much in stone yet so i actually kind of love some of the dungeons in the length of the past because they have very different feel very different structure uh I, to, to put it briefly you structure a zelda dungeon in a very um simple way you go through the first half of the dungeon um there'll be some ways you can't go you'll be navigating you'll get to a point where you get a new item and then that new item will open up the dungeon because you'd be able to use it to operate new machinery or whatever, enter new rooms, and it's a much, it's a kind of much more player-oriented way of kind of opening a dungeon up. Because you have to use your own kind of gumption, your own kind of um, 
thinking to kind of how, how, how now how can I how can I navigate this dungeon now that I'm equipped with this item? That's it. Uh, but basically, a link to the past doesn't really have that. A link to the past has much more kind of um, rigid. Uh, here's the first half of a dungeon, and you go through a door, and you're in the second half of the dungeon. But because because there's so many Zelda dungeons post a link to the past that are kind of designed in a similar way, these ones have become retroactively quite fresh. And some of my favorite Zelda dungeons in the game are, are in the series are in this game, and they're actually. Uh, again, the kind of annoyingly complicated ones. They're the later ones. I was looking. I was just like, and the lead up to doing this list, I was just like hanging around different places on the internet, and I had, so I just happened to find someone saying they replayed a link to the past for the first time in years and liked all of it except the ice cavern, which is the second last dungeon in the game, which is a really complicated dungeon, and and it's really complicated in very simple ways. You move a block, and then the block blocks the block blocks a passage, and suddenly a whole chunk of the dungeon has cut off to you because you've moved that block and you moved it because you, because you needed to get to, to another direction but now you can't go in this direction and it's so simple and then you have to, suddenly you have to find a whole new way to find a way back to the first chunk of the dungeon you've already been to and I love that stuff I think that stuff is great that's the stuff I want to that's the stuff I want to fuck with but I was shocked that um, someone <laughs> said it was, the, it was their least favourite dungeon well I think it's the, the best dungeon in the game but I don't think I can really come at A Link to the Past in the same way that, you know, maybe a lot of people can because I, I just simply didn't grow up with it. Now, I played it when I was young, but I didn't grow up with it. I wasn't young, young, and I'd played Ocarina of Time. I'd played Link's Awakening. I'd played all these other games before I came back and did A Link to the Past. So I think there's some elements of it that if you were a child playing for, playing this for the first time would just stay with you forever and you'll always love this game. And, and things that become became Zelda fixtures like beating up chickens because it's fun and then suddenly the chickens uh, swarm at you and start attacking you that came from a link to the past discovering the master sword for the first time this is all a link to the past it all it, it did it all first but kind of playing it you know with my more kind of i don't know from my more cynical vantage point i just think it's um i think the overworld isn't super fun to navigate in a link to the past I, this could be a me thing it kind of gives me a headache um I find coming out of a dungeon in a link to the past and having the, and I, a new item to mess with and trying to find the exact place in the world to use this item is not the funnest it's ever been in a Zelda game. It's a little bit um, yeah, obtuse, a little bit unclear, and the way the screen scrolls, um, you know, it's, as you as you move as you navigate, um, the overworld gives me a headache, especially when I'm stuck, and that could be a little bit sacrilegious too. But like, yeah, I don't love the overworld of A Link to the Past. I don't love sussing it out, especially since a lot of the rules that Zelda would establish post this game are pretty ironclad, in my opinion, on making um, a better Zelda game, a better game in general. There's a point in A Link to the Past where you can get into a dungeon, you can get to its boss, and you cannot have the correct item to beat that boss. Now, I'm not saying this is there's a few examples I'm t I think there's only one that I can think of and it's unlikely that it will happen to you but it, it can happen and it did happen to me one of the times when I played this game when the game wasn't fresh in my head and uh, that's the kind of stuff I don't look back fondly in terms of oh yeah it, it hadn't solidified into the Zelda formula yet maybe that's a good thing but in a, in a lot of ways it's bad you shouldn't be able to work your way through an entire dungeon get to a boss only to realize you cannot beat the boss and you have to go venture off and find this item or in my case look up a walkthrough what did I miss and anytime you have to look up a walkthrough especially in a game like this it's like a failure on the design and it makes the game immediately more engaging because these things are about being picked apart and unsussed and unfurled and anything else I would say about Link to the Past would be the hide of nitpicking. I do have small issues with it, but I don't think they're worth bringing up. I, I will bring up the fact, though, that this game is completely special to me and that I owe a lot to it. I feel like if, if A Link to the Past didn't exist, I feel like 
I wouldn't have got this, this maybe the Zelda games I prefer more, but I think it's wider reaching than that. I think this was a huge influence on just a ton of young people who grew up into game developers now, and I think it's a super important game. And sometimes people, I'll talk about this more, sometimes Zelda and other games, it's not it's not only Zelda, but happens to Zelda a lot. Sometimes Zelda gets so popular that it just keeps popping up on like a top 100 list or whatever, and sometimes people just get sick of it. And... You know, it doesn't. People might get sick of hearing about a link to the past because it's always brought up as one of the most important games of all the times. Um, maybe people want to, you know, shine a spotlight on some other Super Nintendo games that maybe aren't talked about as much. But it doesn't change the fact that it really is. It really did change uh, the video game industry. It was a, a, a boon to game design in general. And I won't, I'm not going to put it higher than number eight, but I do love this game, and I'm so glad it exists. Number seven, and what I found by pottering around on the internet, looking at other uh, other Zelda lists, looking at some Zelda outlets, looking at fans wherever talking about Zelda, if only briefly I was doing this, is that I think there are a lot of people out there that would have this game also as number one. And it also just so happens to be what I consider one of the other three totem Zelda games. If you were born in a certain time, I think this is going to be your absolute beloved Zelda game, most beloved Zelda game, and in the opposite of Link to the Past, this came out when I was a little bit older. In fact, this game came out when I was, ooh, 18, and my years of 17, 18, around that might be my most disliked years of my life, so I think that might colour a lot of games that came out then, but that's not fair to this uh, game, which is The Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess for uh, the Wii and the GameCube as well, but um, most people would have played this on the Wii. And I have played and replayed this game so many times. In fact, it's probably the game I've replayed and played the most amount of times out of all the games that I don't think is perfect. A lot of the games that I've played 10 plus times I think are perfect and I love going back to them because they give me the fuzzies. I have just a ton of problems with Twilight Princess. I do, and I I hate to say it, I, I really do, but I also think it has some of the best Zelda has to offer. And it is such... A certain, it's hard to describe, it's such a particular certain vibe for a Zelda game. I think it's almost the most mature one, in it, at least in its tone. I think I would compare it a lot to kind of Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings and the, and the, and the kind of tone that game was hitting. That's very what Twilight Princess is for me, a kind of Japanese, more anime, more Zelda version of that. But I'm not of the opinion that the storyline of Zelda games are super important. And even less so with the kind of whole way that they connect as an overall franchise. Maybe I should have said that earlier, but I'm not very interested in the overall timeline of Zelda games, which Nintendo announced officially about five, six years ago, uh, a list of how all these Zelda games connect. And I do think Zelda games can have really good story beats, uh, but I think more so than that, they have great worlds to get sucked into. They have memorable characters, yada yada. So I think a Zelda game attempting to be more traditionally story-driven by means of having just having more cutscenes, having more talking in it, is not necessarily a good thing from my point of view. And this was the first time I've seen this in a Zelda game. It was Twilight Princess, which decided to kind of put more of an emphasis on a kind of a grand sweeping narrative, a kind of an epic story. And Skyward Sword um, did this as well. I've already talked about Skyward Sword, and I think it's actually uh, a negative to both of them, in my opinion, because as good as the world of Twilight Princess is, like, the story is, it's fine, it's a good, like, it, it's a, it's still a traditional Zelda story, you know, um, 
and all Zelda games are traditional Zelda stories and it's the window dressing on each one that gives them their added personality and Twilight Princess window dressing would have spoken for itself without more of an emphasis on its story but what you do get is a darker world a darker story and to kind of single it out you it attempted to do kind of almost character arcs so there would be there'd be a whole, uh, there'd be a whole arc at the beginning chunk of the game where Link is trying to rescue some children who are who are kidnapped from his village and that would be the kind of narrative arc that would carry through that part of the game but that's a good idea in concept but it actually ends up messing with the structure of the game or more accurately it ends up messing with the pacing of the game because the pacing of the game is dictated by you being in the overworld and then being in the dungeons to, to simplify perhaps and have to have a story moment for one the child one the children gets captured by an orc guy and you fight him on a bridge to do a set piece kind of yeah it's a memorable set piece in and of itself but it slots inelegantly into the zelda formula in my opinion and twilight princess especially the first half of twilight princess or perhaps now the first half i was gonna say first third but i think about the first half is very badly paced it's very inelegantly cobbled together despite the fact that the content itself is always good it's always good stuff and just while I'm riding the negativity train, I have to talk about the opening couple of hours of Twilight Princess because I've put so much thought into them because I hate them. And Twilight Princess was a launch title for the Nintendo Wii. And we're kind of in the era of the Switch now, and so Nintendo are doing fine. We don't have to worry about them. But you have to remember that when the Wii came out, Nintendo were just come off the N64 and GameCube eras, which was them very much in last place. The Wii's success was a return to glory for Nintendo and it was a return to a much larger player base. The Wii was a huge um, uh, seller that Christmas or whatever when it came out. And let's be honest, the game everyone was playing, the game that, you know, non-traditional gamers of the time were playing, your grannies or whatever were playing, was Wii Sports. That was the big one. But I am always of the opinion that if Twilight Princess had a better opening couple of hours, you would have got a lot more people who weren't big gamers into the Zelda franchise and into gaming in general via Twilight Princess rather than I'm not pooping on Wii Sports. Wii Sports uh, holds a great place in my heart, but Wii Sports is is a novelty. It is it's a, it's, a, it's a party game. And I'm talking but I'm talking about using the kind of ubiquity of the Wii the console to get people into proper games into a Zelda game. It could have should have been Twilight Princess and I'm sure it was in a lot of households. I'm not saying this ha- this didn't happen. People who never picked up a Zelda game before, probably picked it up because it was on the Wii and everyone was buying a Wii. But more people would have gotten into this if the first couple of hours of Twilight Princess weren't so dog shit. And it, 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 it is that philosophy that Nintendo had around then of, you know, I think maybe they were worried about the new technology and stuff like that where they had to make sure that the, the players knew exactly what they're doing and there's a really slow opening section in a village and then you're running out into the forest and then you're back to the village again and it's all teaching you the mechanics oh so very slowly and it slows the opening hours of that game down so much and it's all said like skyward sword has a really slow opening that's almost equally as bad as well but i'll give it a little bit of credit that at least it's set in the skyloft which is a location you will be returning to again and again so at least it's making you um uh, intimate or aware of an area that you would be returning to a lot and it's and in terms of story it's taking time to develop uh, the romance between link and zelda which would be the spine of that story so at least it has other things going on in its terribly slow opening hours i'm not justifying them but it has more going on 
Twilight Princess has none of that. It's just set in this village and it sets up its story slowly when it could have set up its story quickly. And I always hate the opening hours of Twilight Princess and it's easily the worst part of the game. But what you have outside of that is just this truly epic game. I, I do think is uh, badly paced, but it was going for size at the time. It was, it was, going, it, it was trying to be a traditional Zelda game, but just put more dungeons in and have a big open Hyrule field, have a big open world. And I think the Hyrule field of this game is a little bit barren, a little bit empty. There's a little bit too many uh, loading screens that kind of uh, piece it together so it doesn't feel as kind of wide open and vast. But it's still a cool world to explore and there's a lot of cool locations that have a lot of um, beautiful atmosphere in them. Uh, there's a combination of, you know, the graphics of the time and the music and, and like I said, the kind of darker, um, more melancholic vibe that Twilight Princess has um, over so much Zelda games. And the dungeons are also fantastic. I think the dungeons in the N64 games are better. Personally, I think they're more difficult, more challenging. But there is no Zelda game ever made that uh, rides the line so well of having challenging dungeons intricately designed that also just kind of guide the player through them. You almost don't see or feel the invisible presence of the game designers helping you through these dungeons and making sure you don't get stuck in them or don't find them too uh, complicated. Now, like I said earlier on, personally, I prefer getting stuck. I, pr I like the complicated dungeons. I like um, straining to figure it out. For me, that's more fun. Uh, it's more, the, ch the challenge is fun, but it doesn't mean I don't respect the hell out of designing these, um, these dungeons that are like on surface level complicated, but just through the strength of level design, they're not that complicated. And they don't do that in any way, like like in Skyward Sword, which is give you just a, a, a way too man, too, way too many hints that would give you just way too many hints. They just do it from a clever level design that will funnel you to where you're going without you even knowing. That's what I love about the level design or the dungeon design of Twilight Princess. It's like the perfect middle ground of challenge, where it's not too simplistic and it's not too complicated. And to add to that, you have some of the best design in terms of atmosphere. Just these locations are amazing. You have the Snow Peak Ruins, which is so different from any other Zelda dungeon. It's just this mansion on a uh, on this snowy mountain, and it's it's kind of it's, it's kind of unconventional, and it, it leaves a marker on your map to tell you exactly what room you're trying to get to, which you know normally wouldn't be good. But it's all in service of it. Almost tells a story while you're so while you're solving the dungeon. You're actually trying to you're actually trying to make soup for a yeti, and you're trying to find uh, all these ingredients, and uh, it's it's and and the way that 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 dungeon is designed like like a like a more traditional mansion like a house and there is some floors are missing in the second floor so you can see previous uh, rooms you've been in and the way that that level wraps around itself it's excellent you have the lake bed temple which is all designed around uh changing a staircase that you know allows you to walk to different parts of the dungeon but also helps you fucking flow a river down the stairs that's genius i love that stuff it's brilliant and there's so many examples of that which is why twilight princess for me it doesn't quite fly as high in a lot of degrees uh to other zelda games but it's such a well-made game in so many avenues that like it's just so playable so more so hard to put down and it would be higher if it wasn't for the first half of my little rant about it where i just there's things i just fundamentally dislike about it but when I was hanging out on the internet, I saw that so many people liked this game. So many people had it number one on, on various lists. And I do not begrudge it. I do not begrudge it at all. I have great time for Twilight Princess. And I think I always will. 
Number six on this list is a game that I think got a lot of credit when it came out. But I think it's kind of, um, we kind of forgot, not forgotten, but uh, I think it's, uh, the love for it has subsided a little bit. And I don't think it really rises to the top of um, conversations about the best Zelda games much anymore. It's uh, The Legend of Zelda A Link Between Worlds for the 3DS. And one of my least favorite things about this game is that it's a spiritual successor to A Link to the Past. Not because I have any real problems with that. I just feel like it didn't have to be. There's so many new ideas in this game and it's so its own thing in so a lot of ways that the fact that it's so beholden to another game in the franchise just seems like a missed opportunity for me. And there's, um, you know, a lot of people out there who would think you can't put A Link Between Worlds above A Link to the Past. A Link, to, a link Between Worlds is almost like a a pseudo remake of A Link to the Past, but I, I do prefer it and I, I prefer it for all the reasons that aren't this game aping a link to the past that aren't uh making reference to it and it, it does more than make reference to it it's set in the same world with the exact same map layout they just uh change the content that's in the game and it obviously it came out many many years later long enough for i think people to be so hungry and so nostalgic for a link to the past that they could release this game and kind of bank on people's uh yeah nostalgia for it and I, it's my least favorite thing about it uh because i think everything else it did is so much more interesting and I wish it could. I wish it was because it, it could stand on its own more. That it wasn't this kind of known as this kind of pseudo sequel, pseudo remake, uh, homage to A Link to the Past. So this was the last proper, like proper, proper Zelda game to come out before Breath of the Wild completely mixed up the formula and completely changed everything. And like I said with Skyward Sword, uh, there's a lot of half measures in this game. Ideas to mix up the formula that are still quite clinging to the old formula like a child to its mother kind of afraid to kind of step out into any kind of brave new world but the main thing it did to kind of mix things up was to be truly non-linear and open for the first time since the original legend of zelda game um to some degree there is a kind of a prologue bit of the game that you have to do in a certain order you've got to go to these dungeons and then the game opens up and you're in the land of Hyrule and there's eight dungeons you have to go to. And in any other Zelda game, you go to dungeon one, you get an item, you figure out how to use that item to get to dungeon two. Keep going. Not so much in this one. You can go to any dungeon you want in any order. And I said earlier on that I kind of get a headache from A Link to the Past um, Overworld. And like I said, then that could just be a me problem. Who knows? And I think the fact that no matter what direction you choose to embark on in A Link Between Worlds is almost my that you will find something to do is my favorite part of it that you're never going in a wrong direction so you kind of alleviates what for me is that headache aspect of the navigation of a link to the past because no matter what way you set out to go it's progress you'll find something to do and i i found it because of that when i played a link between worlds i could not put it down and there's very few games i can compare it to in terms of not being able to put it down and i'm talking like hours like 12 hours sessions and i I think i did this in two sittings because there's no restrictions on where you can go you'll always find a new dungeon or you'll always find new something to do it's almost like the zelda formula distilled (laughs) to its perfect essence um yeah it it abandons some aspects but like the fun of some of the zelda overworlds are like figuring them out like a great big puzzle as you go and link between worlds doesn't have that but it trades it for something that's very fresh and cool and new but it has to make some concessions to do this. And these are the things that kind of sit awkwardly alongside it. And which is why I would say that they were still kind of doing half measures until revolutionizing this franchise. Because in order to revolutionize Breath of the Wild and to make it completely different differently, they had to throw out the rule book of how to make a Zelda game. 
and Breath of the Wild succeeds because of that. But because they didn't go, because they didn't throw out that rule book for a link between worlds, they had to kind of work around their own established rules in really awkward ways. So, what if you decide to go to a dungeon? Because you can go to any dungeon you want at any time. What if you decide to go to a dungeon, but you don't have the necessary item to solve puzzles within the dungeon? That wouldn't work. So they had to come up with a way to have Link be able to have any of the items he wants anytime he wants. And they did this through a renting process. You don't find the items in the overworld anymore. You rent them from a shop. And when you die, you lose all the items. And you have to go back and rent them from the shop again. And you know what? (laughs) On one side of the coin, that makes you really, really not want to die. Because that is so tedious to have to do. You might not have enough rupees to uh, buy the items again, so you'll actually have to go farm for rupees. That's incredibly tedious and bad game design, but it kind of makes you really, really not want to die. In that game, it kind of adds a kind of an extra level to it. But uh, on the other side of that coin, yeah, you, it's a very easy game, so you're not really going to die in it. So it's never really much of a problem. So it kind of... I love the idea of being able to kind of go wherever you want in this game. Like I said, I could not put this game down because of that like it was just content 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 one of the most respectful games of my time i've ever played because it's also meaningful and fun and uh, the dungeons themselves are just brilliant there's some brilliant dungeons in this one they're all kind of based off um a link to the past dungeons which again is a bit of a shame i still i really wish these games weren't linked but um minor quibble the dungeons themselves in design and are all completely fresh and um but you do lose that uh sense of uh, progress and how exciting it is to progress how exciting it is to gain a new item or bit of equipment that kind of opens the world up to you because they had to abandon that that whole part of it because they needed you to have all the items on you at one time because you needed to be able to decide to go in any direction so i think if the game wasn't as well designed in its kind of fundamentals as it was i think this would be an awkward game and i think it is in a way design wise it is like i said they needed to go further and going further led to breath of the wild but because the game is just so well designed it kind of makes up for how its fundamental design philosophy is flawed the other side of the this whole game is that it, it was very much made for the 3ds and there's no better game I can think of on top of my head that kind of deserves to actually have the 3D functionality turned on in the 3DS because it does a lot with uh, verticality, with distance, so it, the game really feels like it's floating off the screen. It's really cool game to play in 3D if you're able to track down a 3DS these days and play it. And the other central mechanic that I think is really clever, it's kind of unnecessary but incredibly well implemented, is that this is a game from a top-down perspective, but you can flatten link into a cartoon version of himself and walk across walls and it just changes the whole dimension of a game that essentially operates on a 2d plane and rewires your brain to look at the world differently and like it's the last thing i i I brought up because it's not the thing that came to the forefront of my mind when talking about this game it's all the other stuff yet it's a brilliant uh mechanic it's i think it's personally one of the best kind of i don't know i describe it inessential but insanely clever one-off zelda mechanics i i think it, it's a it's a brilliant one and like i said the best thing about it is how you just kind of uh, you look you look at a very classic type of game very differently because this new mechanic opens it up in ways that you never think of before um it's crazy to say because it wasn't underrated at all when it came out it got really good reviews i believe but i feel like it's very underrated now and i think this may be higher than a lot of people would have it but it is uh, one of the best Zelda games and another another game that Nintendo has just locked away on an uh, antiquated piece of hardware. So thanks, Nintendo. 
are we in the top five now oh my god we are thank you so much for people who are still listening i really appreciate you listening to halo listen podcast obviously but i really doubly appreciate you listening to these ones that end up becoming quite long so thank you if you're still listening i i'm really i was going to say enjoying your company i guess i am but number five is uh the second zelda game i ever played we gotta go all the way back to the game boy and also the game boy color it's the legend of zelda link's awakening and it's weird it's a game boy game but it is the follow-up to um a link to the past which established the the tenets of the zelda formula and i believe that those that this formula was perfected with this game or uh you know yeah like it was it was chiseled down to its pure form i think the dungeons are better i think that uh, that i that idea i talked about earlier on of how they're, they're dungeons are structured around getting an item and how that opens up progression that really began here that's where we're seeing that it's great and in terms of me finding a link between worlds overworld a bit headachey i don't in link's awakening just because it's a little bit smaller and it's a little bit clearer to progress through that's honestly all you need for me and the main thing you got to talk about link's awakening is that is how strange it is is how weird it is this was the fourth zelda game ever made and the second time they went super strange with uh, with the Zelda series. Unlike Zelda 2, which just changed the gameplay dramatically, this has a much more traditional uh, gameplay style, but what they did was change the aesthetic and the setting a lot. Uh, my podcast made own, I believe, on this podcast, once described as like Twin Peaks, and it is. It's very dreamlike and strange. Link washes up on a mysterious island called Koholint. Uh, he has to wake up a, a big entity called the Windfish by playing playing eight instruments, and it's all very strange, strange and dream logic, and very sweet and melancholic, and those are a lot of cool things to pull out of a tiny eight bit game on the Game Boy of all things. That's a lot of emotion to wring out of a Game Boy game, and it's my personal favorite game boy game of all time i i've never played this on the traditional block game boy with the two colors i only played this in the game boy color but it still stands i think this is the creme de la creme of that uh, iconic handheld console and i think it would be like the perfect entry point for zelda fans to get into everything that's good about zelda that everything that's weird to get, a, get that's weird about zelda if only it had a, like an updated more modernized cleaner version oh my god it does on the nintendo switch this was remade in full 3d graphics with an adorable art style and nintendo switch and there's either two things i think to get into the zelda series if you haven't played it before and i'm very much taking into account how annoying nintendo have made finding old zelda games you either jump into legend of zelda breath of the wild which isn't very emblematic of the rest of the zelda series it's very much its own thing but it's it's it stands so tall as its own thing that it's obviously worth playing or you get the Switch version of Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening and that is a classic 90s Zelda game that will have all the things that make a 90s Zelda game and also in a, in a, in a cleaned up shiny new version. So that's where you got to go. But Link's Awakening for me is one of those games and there's many games and we all have these games where I can't, I can't hear the sounds from it without being transported back to just particular time like it just i just remember sitting in the back of my car driving back from a holiday playing this game it just transports me back and i i I, you're going to remember that with any game you play when you're young but i think link's awakening is so perfect it's such a perfect conduit for that kind of emotion because the game itself is so melancholic and dreamlike and nostalgic itself before before it even became decades old 
It's just one of the most personable, charismatic games ever made. I'm talking about it like it's a person now. And I couldn't recommend that Switch version more, but uh, my fondness will always lie for the original 8-bit Game Boy 1. Oh, and another weird thing, it has like a bunch of Mario enemies in it, and Kirby's in it as an enemy. It didn't really have the rules of uh, other Zelda games. I, I think the designer kind of described it as, because it was on the Game Boy, they could make a kind of um, deconstruction or parody of Zelda games. And that's kind of what it comes across as. It's both straight-faced and kind of winking at you. It's a really strange, really strange, whimsical game, while being kind of tinged with sadness. And yeah, just reiterating that, which is a great thing to get out of a Game Boy game. Not many Game Boy games could do that. Garfield, the game, couldn't do that, right? And it tried. It tried. Number four now, and I'm just going to start getting aggressively hyperbolic because these are just my games. These are like my favorite games of all time. I, I say these top four games are probably all of my top ten games of all time. And I can't help it. I'm just built that way. I'm just that type of person. The Legend of Zelda The Wind Waker was really controversial. Uh, when it was announced because it had a strikingly different art style than um, people were used to with Zelda. And there was two 3D Zelda games before this, Ocarina of Time and Majora's Mask, that skewed a little bit darker. And then Wind Waker was announced and it was like a living cartoon. And it was a big moon-faced, round-eyed Link and he looked like a weird doll and everyone just turned on it. And it was, anyway, a very edgy era for gaming Anyway, it was like gaming was growing up, it was adolescence, so it was kind of at a time when gaming culture would kind of turn on something like this. But I think nowadays it's looked back on with, um, if not fondness, then absolute adoration. I think it's one of the most beloved Zelda games. But beyond its um, its different art style, its, different, its setting was completely different as well, and these things merge together in such an amazing way to the point where it just has such a distinct vibe, such a distinct atmosphere. I say this a lot games that I like but I love being in this game I love when I haven't played this game for years and I turn it on and I'm in The Legend of Zelda Wind Waker it is comfy cozy beautiful and another controversial thing about this game is that it's set in an ocean and you're uh, you're sailing the ocean and it's quite empty it's huge and there's no loading screens which was a, a big deal on a GameCube game back in the day but the kind of concessions that have to be made to make this brilliantly big open world was to have all the kind of islands you visit on are very small because the GameCube literally couldn't render anything bigger. So they kind of um, designed the game around the limitations of the GameCube, and which means that there's kind of a lot of silent sailing between landmarks in this game, and they do try to pepper things along the way for you to discover and enemies and uh, items to collect, but it is a lot of empty sailing, and people hated that at the time. A lot of people hated that, and it was a huge um, bone of contention. But to me, it's just so key to the overall vibe of Wind Waker, to the wanderlust it inspires that. Zelda games are always so magical at evoking the spirit of adventure. And they've done it in many of their games, but and, and this is just a different form of that. And there's something very much about everything coming together in, the Wind Waker, in Wind Waker when you're sailing in. Uh, the cartoonish graphics, the way the water is far from realistic, but it's just kind of blue as blue as the sky and, and you're sailing on it and your boat is creaking and you're alone and it's just the wind, it's the graphics, it's the sound design, it's the music, it's how tiny you are in your little boat against a massive blue sapphire ocean. And it, uh, so many games would kill for that kind of atmosphere. So I, it's never a game I got bored about being in. I, it was always a joy to kind of be in it and like, a, you know, a bit of a stereotype, you know, sometimes it's not about the destination, it's about the journey. And some, I sometimes think, why would you play these games if you didn't kind of just like being being in them? 
I guess I guess people might have thought Wind Waker kind of wasted their time, and I guess that's true. I'm kind of I'm kind of arguing with myself here now, but I've never felt that with Wind Waker. I felt like it was always the, the sailing and the huge empty world and the the, the blue ocean and the, the tiny island speckled across it was always such an intrinsic element of that game. Because this game doesn't have some of my like you know other things that I uh, I love about Zelda games. It, it doesn't have some of my favorite dungeons. They're actually a little bit too simplistic for me. They kind of they're kind of in a bad spot between what I consider kind of challenging, um, well-designed dungeons of the N64 era and the more kind of uh, measured dungeons of Twilight Princess. They're kind of they're a little bit too simple in their design. Not saying that they're not brilliantly atmospheric and incredibly memorable like locations to inhabit, but design-wise, they're a little bit too simplistic. So a lot of like my love for the Wind Waker doesn't come from the straight gameplay from it. It comes from all the little ideas and uh, decisions they made that kind of mount up into this wonderfully charismatic thing i love how the sound of your sword when it thwacks an enemy also makes a musical note and when you string combos together it makes a little kind of tune i love how when you first get your boat and you sail off the first island like the first people you meet are these like ridiculous guys who are all like and they're like wearing bathysphere helmets and who are these guys and that's what i love about zelda again i love the way it's always goofy characters goofy memorable characters you run into and I love the kind of systematic way you have to build your map in that game. Because you are sailing an ocean, you have to chart it as you go on. So it's all divided into squares. So it's it's much it's much less kind of uh just go where you will. It's it, it's very kind of regimented and very kind of like this this area will have one island, that this area will have one island. You always know that. And you're charting your map as you go, you're filling in the world as you go, and I kind of love that kind of it's a great sense of progression for the first half of the game when you finally have the entire ocean charted and you kind of know where every island is it feels great but beyond that how you chart the islands is you find weird talking fishmen and you throw them some bait and they come up and they they go like they give you some advice and they draw on your map for you and if it wasn't a zelda game i feel like that would be much more boring zelda always makes the weird memorable choice like that it's one of the things i love about it and i love the exaggerated features of all the characters in this game i love the way they look like muppets and they come in all shapes and sizes and they're and and for their crazy facial expressions link as well like link is a silent protagonist he doesn't talk but they gave him a big round expressive face in this game so that despite the fact he doesn't say any words he's the most like alive that he's ever been and this is my favorite version of link in any of the zelda games he still is and my absolute favorite face he pulls because i do maybe sometime in halo listen i'll have my top 10 facial expressions link pulls in the wind waker is when you make him sidle up against the wall and he makes a really serious solid snake face like he's he's going on a sneaky mission and he's just the cutest but yeah this game was very counter to what was popular at the time and i kind of commend nintendo for their um confidence to kind of just do what they wanted they they often do that just do what they want and not look at the trends twilight princess to me kind of reads much more of a kind of desperation to make something that kind of you know would appeal to what fans wanted for zelda maybe the more west the western fans especially after wind waker that you know the, the, the graphics wind waker is so controversial that like despite the fact that i love the tone of twilight princess it feels more kind of like a business oriented orientated course correction while wind waker feels like really just like cel-shaded graphics are really good in that we can make a living cartoon let's do it and it wasn't the safe thing to do and I don't think Wind Waker sold great because of that, but goddamn, it's so beloved these days, and I look back at it with such affection, and I I wish I was playing it right now. 
number three and Halo Glisten has a whole episode uh, dedicated to this game but that there's, there's nothing wrong with that there's nothing wrong about talking about games again um it's like it's so hard to talk about this game it's just untouchable in my eyes it's too formative for me and it's so iconic and it's just been talked about so much so I, I mentioned earlier on when games or anything get this popular it tends to be come right around to oh it's overrated it, it like it doesn't deserve this and Ocarina of Time is so well past that I don't know if there's ever been a more lauded game in history and because of that it's kind of you know people are almost annoyed about talking about it these days because it's been talked about so much so I don't want to spend much time talking about Ocarina of Time um I would direct you to our episode that we did on it um many many moons ago but it uh it deserves it it just it just deserves all of it and this is my totem Zelda game this is the one that I was nine years old when I played the first time. It was my first Zelda game. Maybe if I played A Link to the Past, I would love it more. I would love Twilight Princess more if I was a kid in the Wii era. But no, I was a kid when the N64 came out and I played this game and there was nothing like it. And I think rather than analyse the game as an adult, which is what we did in our, our previous episode, so I'll point you towards that, I just briefly want to talk about... I'll try to convey how magical this game was to play when you were a kid and I got it in Christmas and just how engrossing that world was and like the graphics are just so antiquated by today's standards but when you combine them with the music and just uh, the N64 era atmosphere that they managed to pull out of it I think it's aged remarkably well and it's one of those few games that I can remember where it became kind of a cultural moment in even in my small town in Ireland where it was just a lot of people talking about it I felt like you could you could feel it being talked about in school I remember having to play um I still remember having to play a game of, of football with uh, another class I can't remember why we were with another class for for PE and I remember this other nerdy kid who clearly also didn't want to play uh play football and we just talked about Ocarina of Time I'd never met the kid before and I think other kids yelled at us but you know <laughs> I bet those kids don't have a podcast now I bet they have careers or whatever but it was it really was just fantastic and these are my favorite Zelda dungeons ever made which is one of the reasons uh, why I'd, I I adore so much as well um, yada 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 people hate the water temple it's actually fantastic it's one of the most challenging and best dungeons ever made the forest temple ditto absolute masterpiece uh, the characters you run into the worlds I think there's a reason why this has become the most iconic Zelda game is because they're just also memorable. Zora's Domain, Death Mountain, uh, Kokiri Forest. These are the best versions of those locations that appear across multiple Zelda games. These are like the best versions of them. And it tells a very simple story, but it manages to hurl a couple of genuine plot twists into it. Uh, I don't know if I should spoil them. Zelda is chic. I already spoiled it. These were huge things when you were a kid. The very fact that you time travel a third of the way through the game and become an adult rather than a child was a huge twist and it was a huge shorthand to tell a compelling narrative in a game that wasn't that interested in telling a huge or being a huge story driven experience but the fact that you had two eras seven years apart of the same world to explore one ruined and one peaceful was just shorthand for good engrossing storytelling in a way that only a video game can do it was just so far ahead of its time in a lot of ways and, and ways we take for granted being able to lock on to enemies so Link is facing an enemy when you're fighting him fighting him in a 3D environment was insane that was like an insane thing to do it was just um in, in, in an era when 3D games were so young you know Nintendo had done it once already with Mario 64 which is proving how um 
revolutionary and versatile this new uh, form of video game making could be uh, ocarina of time is the next one and like i don't think ocarina of time is quite as iconic in terms of um, 3d movement like mario was but almost in every other way ocarina of time is kind of the next step in nintendo kind of really showing the world how to make proper 3d games where you know not just telling a story but you know navigating these 3d worlds and constructing 3d levels um how this can be done in a compelling way that makes them feel living and breathing and just all these years later still so compelling okay number two and i don't have much wisdom to impart you know i don't have any adages i could show it like young folk or anything like that but there's not much i've learned through my years but uh as a zelda fan for almost all my life there is a phenomenon i have um observed and i'm not the only one to observe this isn't a fresh take or anything like that but zelda fans always hate the newest zelda there will always be backlash towards the newest zelda and then when the newest zelda comes out the one before it will get a new kind of perspective on it and that will become beloved again and this didn't happen to the same degree but it's happening right now to the legend of zelda breath of the wild which was a game that was so huge that it didn't really um followed this phenomenon at first but now i'm starting to see it now i'm starting to see it a lot where zelda fans you know are really turning against breath of the wild these days because it is so different from regular zelda games and it's very much looking like with their next game which is for now just called legend of zelda breath of the wild 2 that they're following on from that formula so there was a lot of people lamenting the fact that we might not get our traditional zelda games anymore and the zelda or nintendo are going to follow this new format and like there are 19 games on this list there are very few gaming franchises that get 19 games and even if you separate them out between their two versions okay so breath of the wild would be the sixth 3d zelda game that's still six games in a, in a franchise you know and uh, 19 overall i'm very much of the perspective that nintendo do not owe us any more traditional zelda games Uh, there's games that i love like you know banjo kazooie i got two of those in my life and i'm dying for another one i've been given 19 zelda games throughout my life if nintendo want to mix it up and not do another traditional zelda game i'm yeah i'm fine with that i'm not they've given me enough the amount of happiness over the years that i've garnered from this franchise i can't even quantify this franchise has made me so happy and i know we're not supposed to love things we're supposed to love like you know family and friends and you know all that stuff but you know i love things i love what i love i love video games man and i love zelda and it's made me so happy so i don't feel like i feel like it would be greedy for me to bitch and moan about wanting a new traditional zelda game when i've gotten 18 other ones and i think it would be especially bitchy of me because they may not have made a classic zelda game they may have abandoned a lot of the structure a lot of things that make zelda zelda but they did it in favor of making fucking breath of the wild one of like the best games of all time and there's it's become so popular that there is of course a huge backlash against it in a lot of ways and i'm not saying there shouldn't be please if you hate a game that's popular like be vocal about it don't be a goddamn sheep you sheep but i it won't change my mind i can't change the perspective that this came out in 2017 and in my old man eyes at the time i've been playing games for so long and especially a game that was you know a new iteration of uh, a franchise that began in 1986 it was it just felt like one of the most important moments in games it was just so so good 
so so fresh and I think the fact that this game has still been talked about a lot that kind of you know speaks for itself and it revolutionized and changed the Zelda franchise by you know ironically enough going way back and looking at the very first one that first Zelda game which is the only one where you could go off in any direction you want and that was like the kind of main influence on Breath of the Wild that it's truly an open world game Zelda games are open they have big green fields, Hyrule Field, but they're structured in a very particular way where, yeah, you can go off the beaten track, but the game will stop you in your tracks if you're not supposed to go in this direction first. And like I said, you kind of uh, solve the game like a puzzle as you go on. You gain items, you gain whatever, and you work through the world. I love that. I'll never not love that. I don't necessarily think having an open world is inherently better than that. But what they tried with this one was to get rid of that. Have it truly be open to the point where... You can run to Ganon's castle, which is where you have to go, as quickly as you like. As soon as you do the story of the game, you can run there, and you might be too weak to beat him, but Nintendo ain't stopping you, and Breath of the Wild isn't really stopping you in doing much. It's a game that very much wants you to carve your own path and make your own story, and you'll have a very different experience than the person sitting beside you who has also played it. And I talked about this in our last episode, where Owen and I talked about um, the open world games, and I talked about this with Elden Ring, where... I love the lore in Elden Ring, but the real worthwhile stories that that game is telling is the stories that you make along the way through the gameplay. And that's the same with Breath of the Wild. There's a structure to this game. You've got to find four divine beasts. You've got to awaken them. You've got to go defeat Ganon. But the real bread and butter of the story of Breath of the Wild is your journey along the way and all the little encounters you get, you get into the discoveries you make, the puzzles you solve. And it very controversially is... It borrows from kind of um, Ubisoft-esque open world games in a structure which people found completely sacrilegious in terms of climbing towers to fill in your map. But I talked about this last time as well. It does it in such a way that it's it never takes the the planning of the adventure away from you. Like if you're if you get a map filled in, it's still a blank map. You you could literally got to stare at vistas and find something of note and mark it on your map if you want to go there. If you don't want to mark anything, you just pick a compass direction and walk and you're always directed towards goals expertly in Breath of the Wild and that philosophy kind of shines through in kind of every avenue of the game there's no traditional dungeons in this game but uh, there's things called divine beasts which are really cool creations they're gigantic walking uh, lumbering um, robotic animals and um, you have to explore their innards and they're not quite as well designed or like look look straight up good as like your classic traditional Zelda dungeon but it would be disingenuous to put a classic Zelda dungeon into this game because those are things you have to suss out in a very deliberate way and kind of figure out what the designer meant you to do and that kind of flies in the, fa- the face of the philosophy of Breath of the Wild and I have a ton of respect for Nintendo for kind of going th- going through that philosophy in every avenue of this game of, of abandoning classic dungeons in favor of these divine beasts which are excellent in their own right but are are very much kind of ways for player interpretation of how to solve puzzles which i love as well and that's the same with the shrines which of there are 120 of hidden in the game which are small mini dungeons uh that have a kind of you know a singular puzzle to solve but go on youtube and watch players solving these puzzles and uh they're doing it in ways that nintendo clearly never meant and that is that's what breath of the wild is all about it's about players discovering ways to play this game to break this game for lack of a better word and it's been so wonderful over the years to see the things that the players have managed to do with this game because once you finish your tutorial part of this game an area called the great 
plateau which is one of the best tutorials in gaming history you kind of have all the equipment you're going to have for the rest of the game all the abilities uh, the things called runes which are kind of your magical skills and they're so malleable and customizable in terms of how you can use them that you can just kind of do discover things on your own and that means it's just it's just a wonderful kind of world to explore that way but it's not one that you're kind of intricately figuring out it really just is an open playground for you and with this game's colossal success, this could be the, the, the model, the structure that Zelda games take from now on. And if that's the case, yeah, it's not classic Zelda games, but it's a very good model to structure um, a franchise around. But in saying that, don't write Nintendo off. There was a time when people thought Skyward Sword was going to be like, you know, what was going to be representative of what Zelda games were going to become. And that wasn't the case at all. Um just uh, not to end on a, on a negative note with Breath of the Wild, but for the people who are very concerned about the, the sanctity of classic Zelda being lost with this uh, new version of the game, I, I wouldn't write Nintendo off. I think there's going to be a ton of surprises in, in the sequel. But I have to circle back to if this is now what Zelda games look like. Yeah, look, it's not what we're used to, but what an amazing new form to take. And what just an absolutely incredible game that deserves to be influential. Um, I, I, I remember at the time just seeing videos and reading about other developers talking about Breath of the Wild. It was just one of those games that seemed to kind of um, uh, just bring people from the industry together in just uh, uh, in their in their awe and how impressed they were by it. And uh, it, so, despite the fact that some Zelda fans have turned on it over the years, I recommend anyone who's into games to at least um, play this game. And I was trying to recommend where i think the best point to uh, enter the zelda series is and breath of the wild is kind of outside of that i think um you should play it anyway if you've never played a zelda game this is as good as any it's not representative of the franchise but it's a game that needs to be played and uh yeah it's one of the best games of all time and but still only my second favorite zelda game so, time to finish off this list. Thank you so much if you're still listening. That's so nice of you. This is a very long episode. If you are a Hey Look Listen aficionado, there's three of us, Liam, Jonathan, and Owen, we're the aficionados, you'll know um, what my number one is already because we did an episode about our favorite games of all time. And my favorite Zelda game of all time is also my favorite game game of all time. It is The Legend of Zelda Majora's Mask. And since I've talked about this game before, I will direct you towards that episode, our favorite games of all time. I think I did a really good job selling it. But for this video, I want to talk about Majora's Mask, but also kind of put a, a kind of a bow tie on my entire feelings on the Zelda series uh, as, a, as a franchise. Because somewhere along the path, the Zelda series seemed to kind of gain a reputation for being very samey. At least it did with um, certain people and a lot of people who haven't played it. And I think the reason for that is is because it often leans into the same story beat. So, um, you know, it is often just saving the Princess Zelda. It's often the same villain. And, like, the structure can be uh, very similar in a lot of games. Like, let's take Wind Waker and Twilight Princess, for example. Like, stylistically, they couldn't be too further apart. One is this uh, candy-colored cartoon adventure, and one is, like, really dark and grim. But if you take the... the model of that game how it's structured it, it, they're the same you kind of you begin with you begin uh, the first chunk of the game where you have to go to three different places and gain three MacGuffins. then there's a big story moment and then a change happens in the world and you do the rest of the game and that the real story reveals itself and that kind of model was taken from ocarina of time which in turn that took it from a link to the past so there's a kind of a structure you can follow through with the zelda series and because the trappings the rescue the princess and the go to the forest go to the volcano go to the water place 
because a lot of Zelda's kind of repeat that, I think a lot of people think the, the Zelda franchise is very samey, and it is uh, on a surface level in a lot of ways. I, I I won't deny that, but in comparison to other franchises that have a lot of games, I think there's few, if any, in fact, that are kind of bring so many new ideas from game to game. Yeah, like like I said, surface level Zelda can be very samey, but they're always bringing in new mechanics that to build an entire game around. And these new mechanics can sometimes just change uh, gameplay dramatically or add new um, levels to it, new versa- versatility. So what I'm kind of trying to say is I think the Zelda series is hugely robust. Uh, you, uh, there's so much variety in it and so many new ideas over the years. But there is an alternate universe, perhaps, <laughs> than our own where the Zelda series was allowed even more creativity and it took even more chances and mixed it up more with each iteration. And in that alternate universe, a lot of the Zelda games are more like The Legend of Zelda Majora's Mask. And I, I always hold it up as the one that's like, imagine if with each game Nintendo took even more chances, you'd get more Majora's Masks. Because it's very much um, a Zelda game, of course, and it, and it has all those trappings I mentioned there a while ago. Well, some of them, not all of them, in fact. But it's so very different, and it's so very weird, and it's so very experimental. And it had the honor of following Ocarina of Time. It came out two years after it. And it's a very difficult thing. It's a very um, tough act to follow. It's very hard to make what was one of, if not the biggest game in the world at the time, you know, and have all that praise and accolades thrown at it, and then have to follow it up. And I have a ton of respect for them going the direction of not trying to repeat what they did, not trying to make it bigger, but taking the bones of that game and uh, making a very strange sequel to it because uh, Majora's Mask is um, made off the same um, engine as Ocarina of Time. It shares a lot of assets. It looks incredibly similar to it. It it is unmistakably cut from the same cloth, but it's such a different game. And I I love that they just went in a a controversial direction with it because this was a controversial game at the time, but only because Ocarina of Time was so loved that no matter matter what they make, it wasn't going to be as loved. It could could never just hit that success so I think it was a right idea to go for something strange and nowadays uh, kind of the opinion has become the opposite of Majora's Mask I think it's one of the most uh, beloved Zelda games but it, it took a long while for that happening for that to happen I remember when it was kind of very much in Ocarina of Time's shadow and the lead designer on it was IGA Inuma and he after this ended up basically been given the keys to the entire franchise and he was Mr. Zelda for a while and I believe he was the creative de- director on almost all of them after until um, Breath of the Wild hit but I read an interview with him um, when the remake of Majora's Mask came out in the 3DS and he you know openly admitted he f- like he hadn't played it since he wanted to play the N64 one before working on the, the remake and he found some of the N64 one unplayable he completely admitted it he he was just like I can't believe I let this happen uh, he was clearly just critiquing his own work but I think there's some truth to it because one of the things about Majora's Mask is that it was made under intense uh, time pressure. Uh, Nintendo, the hires up, wanted a sequel as quickly as possible, and they were looking at what the competition was doing, like maybe over in PlayStation, like your, your Tomb Raiders and your Crash Bandicoots. And they wanted a quick turnover. They wanted a game made quickly, reusing the assets of Ocarina of Time. And with that brief in mind, Majora's Mask is cartoonishly ambitious. It's a Groundhog Day-like story where you're repeating the same three days over and over again in a, in a land called Termina that has about to have the moon fall on it and destroy it. And you have to um, keep reversing time and kind of uh, sussing out the world and learning from things that are going to happen and kind of making a schedule. And you can go to the main town, Clock Town, and learn everyone's schedule. And I said that this last time, 
I talked about it, but one of my one of my main reasons why it's one of my favorite games is just that I love sinking back into this game. I love the world of it. And in a, in a similar way, I talked about the original, original, original Legend of Zelda earlier on, where I felt I played it in a new era. That when if, if people who played it back in the eighties played it, they would have kind of um, they would have been immersed in a different culture of gaming at the time, and it, it was a culture that suited a hugely ambiguous game like the original Legend of Zelda. I feel the same way with Majora's Mask. I played this in the year two thousand when it came out. I got it for Christmas, and like any game you play when you're a kid. You, you're just given it and it's all all you're playing you know you have the time to play this game and i think that's the best way to play majora's mask to kind of go into it with um no kind of time constraints because it's a great game to hang around in and when you're hanging around in it and you're and you're not really worried about um progressing or hitting goals you end up kind of um becoming more immersed in the world and kind of discovering new things because that's the point of majora's mask is is he has not quite to, to forward momentum all the time, but to kind of um, just, yeah, hang out in Termina, hang out in Clocktown and start seeing, you know, people's schedules and start immersing yourselves in them in the schedules and then suddenly you can kind of get involved in their lives and you can start um, doing side quests. Like, for example, when you begin the first day in Clocktown, you can see a strange boy in a mask run up to a, um, a letterbox and, and look in it and you don't know who he is, but he's there every... 6am on the first morning so you start making schedules in your head you start noticing things and then that eventually leads you to become um, embroiled in their lives and that's the, that's the point of it it's a very sad melancholic game and it's full of sad melancholic characters and you as the hero Link um, usually Link is heroic in, a, in very kind of a fantasy ways like defeating evil but this one very much has him kind of um, positively affecting human lives he always positively affects human lives but in an almost domestic sense this time and like um, like I was saying, IG Enuma just found so, some of it so unplayable. And I think the reason why is because they had no real time to kind of um, second guess themselves. This game had to be made very quickly. And I think it gets some of its charm from that almost. I think if they had like double the time to make this game, I don't know, that there'd be it would lose some of its purity. But what I'm kind of trying to get to is that I think if you play it these days in, in the age of, you know, the walkthrough online and, and whatever, I don't think... Like, even if I played it these days, if I discovered it these days, I don't think I would just kind of hang out and immerse myself in this game as much. And I think, in a lot of ways, it's too vague for its own good, and it's too hard to discover a lot of it, as some of it critical path stuff, some of it not, if you're not kind of just wasting time in it. And that is that is a criticism, but one of the reasons why it's my favourite game is because I just did play it a lot when I was a kid, and it's the, the best way to play Majora's Mask, and my biggest recommendation for anyone getting into it is to kind of unlike most elders is to not go in with this um i want i do if i'm playing for an hour an hour and a half i want forward progression sometimes just kind of noticing something you never noticed in in the middle of clock town or somewhere in the terminal world map that that's progress and it's 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 not tangible progress but it's it's what's fun about that game and there was a 3d 3ds remake like i said and i really want that 3ds remake to be ported onto the switch or something because it, it unfortunately has some faults uh, mechanical faults it, it, it makes some of the controls worse and there's um, a group of people who don't really like the kind of co more colorful graphic style than the, the kind of um more drab n64 original but whatever but the reason i want this because it just it, it, it gives a lot of helpful additions in terms of that game not being so vague and having a big side quest menu that you can go back to so you kind of all your schedule all the things on the on character schedules was categorized for you and i think majora's mask needs 
to help the player more in these regards, which makes the 3DS version of Majora's Mask the, the best way to play this game still, in my opinion, but it's just locked to the 3DS forever. But yeah, I adore this game. It really is just my favorite game of all time. And I love even reading about people who don't like it because, you know, it's such a weird Zelda game that obviously it's, it's very much beloved now, don't get me wrong. But of course, there's always people who don't, don't like it because... Um, you're constantly timed in this game. There's a ticking clock at all times, and you know that can be kind of opposite of fun sometimes. But I think one of the fun parts of this game is kind of learning how to manage your time, and kind of you know maybe maybe that's not a, a very chill experience for some people, but I enjoy kind of uh, playing Majora's Mask as efficiently as possible, you know. And and that and that sounds like a chore, but it really isn't. It, it's fun to just kind of <laughs> it's fun to make schedules in that game. And kind of uh, learn the best way to do things, but I do, I do like that people don't like uh, Majora's Mask sometimes. I, I it, to me it really emphasizes what a, a wide swing it was, what a, what a strange experiment, and to kind of reiterate, I do think the Zelda franchise would be better as a whole if more games were like Majora's Mask. Just very strange, very. Um, controversial uh, not, controversial might be the wrong word just very experimental and don't get me wrong the Zelda series is t- is full of experimentation that's what makes it so wonderful and they always um come up with new shiny ways to make these games endlessly enjoyable endlessly surprising but yeah there's there's an alternate reality where we're, there's more Majora's Masks and I think the Zelda series would be would be better for it but in this timeline of the multiverse at least we have the legend of zelda majora's mask my absolute favorite game of all time and number one on this list of the top 19 zelda games and oh my god thank you so much for joining me on this zelda odyssey that was um 19 games i did there um if you enjoy this kind of nonsense please you know um share with your friends you know i'm always saying this i hate it's my least favorite part of the recording but please Please share with your friends and um, follow us on Twitter and on Instagram. And thank you for listening so much. And this would be amazing. If one person who's never played a Zelda game played any of those 19 games out of this, I would, um, I, would, I would be a happy little camper. But for now, I will just say my name is Liam Sheehan. And seriously, thank you so much for listening. And I will see you next time. Bye, everyone.